You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Can you turn up sound, please? Glad you're getting to see it, too. Okay, roll it! I always wanted to say that. You know, man, I would really dig to be able to go back to the neighborhood, man. To do the things I used to do when I was just a kid. I mean, like it was a groove then, you know what I mean? I mean, I really would like to return to all the things like like stickball and ring Olivio. Can you make it a little low? That's Ray. That's me, that's me with a gun. Oh, man. It was a groove in those days, you know? That's me, too. I did that in school. I always met a job. She was your love. I was retired. That's my mantra. Oma-oom. My mother, my Aunt Sylvia, my me. I mean, it was it was sharing popcorn in the movie house. Grooving with ice cream. Yeah, that's my father. My father and my mother on their wedding. But let me say this. Love between five people. Now that's heavy, man. Now that can be a groove, especially if one of those people is me. Can you dig it? Because you should get together. Everybody should get together and get in your bed. It's my bed. It is? See, we used those. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Ms. Heather Drain. Hello, hello. Also back in the booth after far too long is Mr. Adam Spiegelman. Where have you been, my man? It's so good to hear your voice. On this special episode, we are looking at the 1984 film from director Alan Sachs, Dubidio. It's a movie as unusual as its name. It's a multi-layered story of a director, the titular Dubidio, played by Ray Sharkey, who is given a chore to put together a film about the band The Runways. At the same time, we hear a post-mortem of the film as we're watching it unfold, courtesy of a running fictive director's commentary. I'm not sure if there's much to spoil about Dubidio, but we're not going to shy away from talking about any parts of this movie, so you have been warned. Adam, you asked me literally years ago to talk about this film, so I'm so curious. When was the first time you saw it, and what did you think? Obviously, I was like, let me talk to the two people I only talk to once a year about Dubidio. I think I've talked about this before. When I was in high school, there was this, there was a bunch of video stores in my town, but one had all these weird videos, and I thought it was kind of like art house idea, and they had like a lot of strange films that that's how I discovered them, and Dubidio is one of them. And one day I was in there and there's a nerdy guy who owned the place and there's this big macho dude, big muscles, just forcing these terrible movies on him, you know, starring John Voight. He's like, he's like, okay, I'll take it. I'll take it. And the guy's like, and I was like, and I, asked, and I started talking to the distributor or pushy salesman, bully. 
And I asked him about it because I was so fascinated. He's like, yeah, I just do these small films and I get them around. And this guy likes to take my stuff or else. So uh, there's a lot of great videos there. So Dubidio just looked. I mean, if you look at the poster, I'm, I'm sure you'll have it up uh, when you watch this thing. It just looked so punk rock and cool. I had to see what it was. And I couldn't believe that this wasn't a big thing. And Heather, had you seen this one before? I haven't been familiar with it for years. It's kind of cool that Adam's story is tied to video stores because um, back in high school, we had a uh, local store called Crossroads that had a very generic name, but had some of the most amazingly weird films as well. Like, that's how I saw the Santa Sangre, like the NC-17 version, and like they had Ilsa, She-Wolf of the SS, and just all kinds of crazy films, but they had Dubidio. And I already was very much like getting into like old school punk rock. And of course, I've always loved weird movies. So I was like, oh, yes, but it was always rented. I kind of think that somebody just never returned it and they just were too lazy to ever take the cover down. But I would always, as soon as we go into rent movies, I would immediately beeline to this i think they had it in comedy <laughs> which is not the category i'd put it in but it haunted me for years because it's not the easiest film to find so i finally got to see it in my my much later years it's stunning it's like i wasn't disappointed and at the same time it's kind of like it's like a film it's like a cinematic abortion but it's very captivating at the same time i think that was on the poster you can't watch it in certain states yeah i wonder i wonder who kept that movie I'd like to meet that person. I mean, I'm from a working class town in Arkansas. So I'm like, what other weird soul out there was like, ah, this Ray Sharky movie, it's mine. (laughs) We had a couple of movies at the Blockbuster where I worked at where they would never come back because the guy who rented them was busted and the videos were in his car and we tried to get them back from the, the Michigan State Police and they just would never send them back. So... It was kind of the same thing if you ever wanted to rent Quigley Down Under in the Ann Arbor Blockbuster, (laughs) which I know, Heather, had you ever visited Ann Arbor, that probably would have been the first thing that you did. Uh, Actually, my mom owned it on VHS. (laughs) (laughs) She was in love with Tom Selleck. Uh, But that's okay, because I had a crush on Alan Rickman, so it worked worked out out in my favor. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Would I have rented it, though? Hell no, no. I first came across this one in the Destroy All Movies book, which I think came out about 10 years ago, because I think one of the first interviews we ever did for the show was interviewing Zach Carlson about Destroy All Movies. And it's a fantastic book. It's up there with like Mike McBeard on McPadden's obsessive books about heavy metal in movies and teenage comedies. This one is all about punks and movies. And this fit in so well because having actual punk rockers in the movie, it just wasn't adopting that like punk aesthetic. You didn't see like a guy with the mohawk pass by somewhere in the, in the, the background. This actually had real punk folks in this movie. I had no idea what I was really getting into. Like, as soon as you put on the movie and you start to hear people talking, I was like, what is going on? Am I hearing something from somewhere else? <laughs> like, what, what is happening here? And it's just so bizarre that it is just all of these different layers, including a commentary about the movie as you're watching the movie. I, I was pretty impressed by that. That was so revolutionary because obviously it was before DVD commentary. So the guy is doing the commentary, and you can't not have the commentary on the movie. That's the movie, is the commentary. 
the way that he explains things and will tell you like right at the beginning, like, oh, that's a security camera. That's going to come back later. Yeah, that was crazy. But I love when he said like, because I was watching, I was like, oh, I thought it was so artistic and full of itself that it was doing stills of Dubidio in the beginning, opening up his door. And then you hear the filmmaker say, hey, these freaking people wouldn't give me 8,000 more dollars. So I had to use still photos to shoot the opening. And I was like, oh, my God, that's brilliant. Also, major kudos for using, I think, what might be my second most favorite piece of graffiti ever, which is Agnes Moorhead is God. I love it. I, I kind of did like a little clap when I saw that. I was like, yes, yes. It's incredibly like off-putting, but in a cool way initially, because especially for any of us that are kind of babied at this point and used to hearing com- like you know, traditional commentaries, this isn't it. I mean, it's literally just kind of like him and I think El Duce from The Mentors and maybe one other person kind of like shooting the shit a little bit. Like, it's like there's some information, but then it's just kind of like, just all throughout the film, just kind of various crude comments. Some are funny, some not so much, but it's it's almost like Dada at points, because it's like their audio mixes in with other audios, and it's mixing with people talking, it's mixing with other music. I imagine if you saw this in a theater and heard that in the speakers, how, I'm mean, just imagine how like disorienting that would be. It must have been harder, too, because... I was watching it on my, from my phone on my TV and I kept having to make it louder to hear the Allen part, the, the peanut gallery part. And so I finally just put it on headphones in my, um, from my phone and a small screen is a great way to watch it. It just, I could hear everything and it made it so much better because he, he was on the same level as the actual movie. So you kind of got both. Though I love there are points where in, a song will start, and he'll he'll start yelling louder. Turn that up. Turn that up. <laughs> yeah, because you want that anyway. Yeah, I love it. And you know what? Sometimes it seemed like hit. I don't know if he did this on purpose, or I was just reading too much into it, or I felt bad that I asked you guys to watch this film. His real life commentary would match what was going on at Dubidio. Like Dubidio is trying to convince this woman who just happened to walk into his apartment to stay and not leave. Meanwhile, Alan's yelling at some girl who wants to leave, and he's like, just stay, stay for the next act, it's going to be okay. And he is, obviously, Dubidio, it's his, you know, alter ego. So here's the guy, you never see, like, the filmmaker's alter ego and the filmmaker exist at the same moment. Just so we're not confusing the audience, because if you haven't seen this movie, you're probably not going to understand what we're saying, so let's kind of, like, spoon-feed it to them a little bit. So at the core of this film is a movie called We're All Crazy Now by Bernard Girard, which was never finished. And that was what I understand from reading about it. It seems like it was kind of a hard day's night type movie with the Runaways. That's the Joan Jett band from the 19, what, late 1970s, right? Mm-hmm. Like mid, mid to late 70s, yeah. So there's that movie going on, and that, in the, the Dubidio film, there's a, a story where there's a character called Dubidio, and he's played by Ray Sharkey, and he has a friend who's an editor who's played by Dirk Scratch, uh, who plays, sometimes I call him Benny, sometimes I call him Benito, and there's this whole thing of him having to finish editing this movie of the Runaways by a certain time, or else Uncle Leo from Seinfeld is going to get really upset. Yeah, not threatening at all. He's very, very angry, angry man. So there's that going on. And then the third layer is us watching this movie and then hearing Alan Sachs, the director, 
hearing El Duce, who was from a punk band called The Mentors, who also makes appearances in the movie, which is also somewhat confusing that you've got his voice on the soundtrack as the commentary, but also seeing him in the movie itself. And then, yeah, there's like a third, maybe even a fourth voice, which are one or two women. And yeah, you hear them chatting to each other, but also talking about the movie. And so, yeah, it is just this, it's a very, very interesting way to tell a story. And especially that we're all crazy. Now was never finished. The DeBedio movie inside really wasn't necessarily finished. So then we're hearing him, we're hearing Alan Sachs talk about how he's using photographs and Polaroids and this bit and that bit and another thing, and just all slapping it into this to, in order to make the final thing that we see. It's like, I mean, this film is collage art in the most sort of captivating, at times frustrating way. It's it's one I'm still kind of processing because part of me really admires just like the spirit of it. And I mean, there's a lot of like really cool elements, but the other part of me kind of like really had a strong aversion <laughs> to it. And I think part of it, though, was the Dubidio character. He wasn't charming. No, no. He actually reminded me a lot. This is going to be a weird cut here, but whenever you hear um, Paul Stanley's stage rap, when he intros for Kiss, their song Hide Your Heart, which is not a good song, but he's always about Tito King of the Streets. <laughs> and like when he talks about Tito King of the Streets, I feel like that's how Dubidio acts. And I, and I think Ray Sharkey's a good actor. Like I like Ray Sharkey. He basically kind of like almost coerces this woman to stay with him, like kind of manipulates her. He's kind of holding her hostage. He's definitely holding uh, Benito hostage to Poor the point where, he's, where he chains him to a chair. Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> he's yeah, got these poor... huge medieval chains that he puts him on. Yeah, the manacles go on. And he's got the fake gun, but he's pointing it at his allegedly his friend's head like he's going to take him out if he doesn't finish editing this thing and that's the thing is like dubidio at the end is like taking credit for all this stuff and i'm like motherfucker benito edited this whole thing how are you taking credit for this that's the most realistic part of the film that is are you kidding me <laughs> come on that's his job is to get him it's because of him this guy is so smart he was smart enough to hire him that's what it is and he had to keep him there. That's not easy, said a guy who's a producer. Don't talk me out of a job, guys. I don't know about you guys. I was shocked that that was Durf Scratch. Because like, I knew he was in the movie. And when I first saw it, I kept thinking, where's Durf? And I kept thinking, oh, Benito looks familiar. And then when I saw the credits, I was like, holy shit, that's Durf Scratch. From That was Durf from Fear? Because like, Durf isn't one of my favorite parts in Decline of Western Civilization. The people are gobbing on Fear, and he's just like, oh, you guys spit real good. Like, <laughs> and he's like, so okay. I just like, cartoon hearts over my head. just Because everybody else's film is pretty rec recognizable. I mean, we got Texacala Jones, for crying out loud, from Tex and the Horseheads. When the Joanna Went part came on, my wife was not very happy about that. <laughs> Did she know who she was, or she just didn't want to watch it? Just the, the noises that yeah. Joanna was making? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't know anything about her until I listened to your interviews, and I was like, wow, she's in L.A., and she's still performing. If there wasn't quarantine, I would love to go see her. I don't know who I would take, because my wife would hate it. It was great that he put her in there, or like Derv as an actor. That made this movie authentic, because... Like, Especially just us growing up. Um, well, for me, I grew up, you know, in the suburbs or, or out in the middle of nowhere where this is the videotapes and USA up all night or whatever the or night flight. 
those are the only like avenues to alternative life, you know, to kind of the punk scene. Well, I did an episode on another state of mind a few years ago, or maybe it was last year, and that, that was the thing. We kept talking about night flight, and that was the only place that we could see another state of mind. So having social distortion in here, I was just like, oh, yeah, this is that scene. This is that stuff. So I'm glad that you brought up night flight because, yeah, that was kind of your only entree, especially in the West Coast punk stuff. Do you think the movie gives it gives a credibility that? Derps in it, but unrecognizable or text or, you know, or do you think um, it would have been better if he had regular actors in this? I thought Durf was a great actor, actually. Yeah, he was actually perfect. He was like the the accountant from The Untouchables. Okay. <laughs> you know, that's what. <laughs> yep. I, he looks like him. I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> that factor is always what made me the most curious about this film. You know, was the integration of people from the punk scene. Um, what's what makes the film, I think, kind of adds to sort of its weirdness. I mean, besides the obvious, is that you kind of have a film that has authentic punk people, but the people directing it, like Alan Sachs is a Hollywood guy. Like he's, he's a TV guy. I mean, he even like mentions that to his credit in the intro where he you know, has a little sign with his name. He's like, Oh, that's from welcome back Cotter. And he's kind of laughing, which I thought was really cute, but he's, you know, outsider. And it got me to thinking like most of the films, and there's not a whole lot of them, obviously that were made involving real punk people as far as old school. Most of them were directed by people that were kind of on the outside. Like Julian Temple, great rock and roll swindle, though he was kind of closer than some. Renee Dalder with Population One, which had like the Screamers in it, also El Duce's in it for a hot minute, uh, and Beck when he was twelve years old. So, <laughs> wow! But Alan it's- was in the scene. I mean, he was at the clubs with these guys, and I'm I'm guessing allegedly maybe doing drugs with these people all night. So yeah, so five in the morning. So he knew them, and he knew the scene. So he, you know, he wasn't a singer. And he was probably wearing a button-down shirt and had to go and had to go to work, uh, the, you know, at ABC the next morning. But he was in that in that he knew the scene well enough. He kind of he kind of straddled both worlds. And I don't know, Ray, if you can get someone who's hundred percent in the scene who can direct or can find the money or can find someone who let him edit this film for three, four years, or however it took, then yeah, that's that's great. I think that was his addition to it was his uh, background. No, that's cool. I mean, and honestly, I've I've never seen his name mentioned in books, but obviously, was I a part of that scene? No, I was. You know, I wasn't alive for part of it. But I mean, he kudos to using like Gary Panter, who's not mentioned on the IMDb, but I noticed is in the credits, and that's one of the things I did love about this film was the art work used throughout. And I kept thinking that looks like Gary Panther, who's a really cool, like underground comic artist. And he was married to Nicole Panther, who's also in decline of Western Civ because she managed the germs and also went on to be kind of a cool actress was in Pee Wee's playhouse, like the stage version with Phil Hartman. Yeah, she's in that HBO special. Like, she's the one that Pee Wee tries to play doctor with. Like, it's so weird when you see that. It's so much dirtier. Wait, he looks for her underpants and he's, and he's upset she's not wearing any? Yeah, he's just, <laughs> and he's got, there's a great interview with her on um, Alice Bags. Uh, from the bags has this great uh, website called women in punk where she interviews all of the various women from the punk scene, including Nicole little side note there, but I highly recommend it for anybody into uh old school punk. 
that's nice that she was a manager of a band rather than necessarily in a band. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing about the punk scene that I find really fascinating is that there were so many different types of people. It wasn't just like, everybody just thinks like angry white dudes, which is kind of what hardcore would become. But in the early days, it's like, no, you had women who were roadies, managers, you know, just kind of in every facet. You have photographers, zine makers. Kudos to Alice Bag. She's not in this movie. She's not into <laughs> she's she's not into BDO. Honestly, I think uh this has always been a film that seems to get a lot of kind of horrific reactions from women in that scene. You know, and especially Joan Jett, which is understandable. Did you see the documentary about her on Hulu? On Joan Jett? I've seen one documentary about her. I I'm not sure which one though. She talks about how she met her partner because they are com- contractually obligated to do music for a movie, which is they're all crazy now. And then, so a lot of those songs, that's how she met her partner of 30 years, which is an awesome out, you know, which came out of Dubidio came Joan Jett. But she said, she just mentioned, they show the, the, the poster of the movie. And then she just says, it's some soft core porn art film. I was like, yeah, you. I wish it was, because I can sit through it. But uh, so dismissive. But it is, he admits it's, it's, it's misogynist. It's very misogynist. I think anything that El Duce was involved in is probably going to be misogynist. People are going to turn off, yeah. Why would you say that, Mike? I know, the, the, I know. The creator of Rape Rock himself, misogynist. Come on. Population One's not misogynist, and I know he appears in the uh, porno backstage sluts. Um, I'm sure that's pretty open-minded towards women. <laughs> You're not helping his case. I tried to get an interview with Johanna Went because she was married to Stuart Kornfeld for a while, who I interviewed. But unfortunately, like when I interviewed Stuart for our episode on the fly he pretty much told me, he was just like, I'm not long for this world. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like thinking that, you know, he wasn't going to be able to stay alive in Trump's America or something. And then he's just like, no, no, I'm, I have a degenerative disease. And so by the time I reached out to him about uh, Johanna, I think he was already too far gone. So I never got a response from that, but he was such a nice guy. And I can't imagine them as, as kind of like a power couple. Or he just really didn't want to talk to you again and just didn't know how to, say, didn't know how to reject you. He's not good that at rejection. probably could be. Oh, you're so mean, Adam. Not to, not to Michael. I apologize to Johanna. Don't scream at me. She, that's a name. When we started researching, I kept thinking, I know this woman. I know this name. And it hit me because um, she also, she pops up in a documentary on Boyd Rice called Iconoclast, which I wrote about like years ago when it came out. Think about it. A, a human being that connect to a key person behind Cronenberg's The Fly and Boyd Rice. That's a pretty impressive person, I think. Well, that's like the great mixture of the guy who creates Welcome Back Carter and then, you know, as part of the punk scene and then makes a punk movie. Or I interviewed him. He said that he was like trying to get these guys to do stuff and he was trying to do punk shows and, you know, it didn't work. But yeah, it's great that the punk scene or just LA scene was able to mix with so many different kinds of people to, to take this small thing and just get it out there which is what la does show business does you know for good or for worse i mean it it makes you wish that there were definitely more movies that integrated that even with some of the problems and actually before i go further can we remark upon that scene from with like we're all crazy now where joan and the faux runaways one of whom is cheryl rainbow smith 
who is, you know, even in like a blimp, like she's been in this film for like maybe two minutes total, just luminescent. But they, they stumble upon what looks like a lesbian ranch. Yeah. What the <laughs> and fuck? Like, but that, and like the main like lesbian, she's all muscly and she's kind of hot. And I'm like, and the guys are like, Ooh, you know, like they're being like pretty homophobic. And it's kind of funny that they're disgusted, but praising Joan Jett. I, yeah, I'm sure she's not adverse to the ladies. Okay. <laughs> right. And they must know that at this point. They're watching the footage. People that knew her back then, I don't. I don't think she was ever really in the closet. But I want to know about this less. I'm like, where's that movie about this amazing like Amazonian lesbian ranch? <laughs> you want to know where the ranch is? That's what it sounds like. It's a movie. I'm sorry. Yeah, I kind of would have liked to have seen that footage of "We're All Crazy Now." Like, how much did they shoot? What was the story? Was there a story? There seemed to be something going on with the school bus, but. I don't know if we saw like every single inch of that footage and it just is all kind of mixed up in the movie. Is there more to that that exists out there? It felt like he had 35 minutes of that and maybe showed all of it. But what he did to fill in Dubidio, like you were saying, Mike, he could have just, why not? Why not? Is a question for him, I guess. Why not use that to fill in? We're all crazy now. Photographs and commentary and, and, or do an anthology, but instead, he just took this footage and put something on top of it, which is Dubidio, and that didn't work. And he put something on top of it, which is 100 pictures in the kitchen sink, and that didn't work. So he did audio. And then he's like, I'm going to have 100 little things, and that's going to equal one good thing. I don't know if Heather would agree with that math, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 99. As a whole, I, I, I didn't, you know, I don't know. I didn't like it. I didn't like the movie, but it has things I respect about it. And that's the thing. Like, anytime somebody does something – like out of the box and out of bounds. And this film, even if somebody does completely hate it, it is out of bounds. It is a boundless movie. And I do have to give respect for that. And a lot of the music's really good. Cause I am such like, I'm a music person as much as a film person, if not maybe a little more so sometimes the talking over some of the music irritated me. It actually reminded me a lot of um, the DVD of the dam's final damnation concert. Cause half of the time they have some obnoxious guy talking over the band and it's like, dude, shut the fuck up. I'm trying to listen to the song. <laughs> now, obviously this is a little different. And even if it irritates me, I will give objective prompts to anybody that employs theater of cruelty tactics creatively also the singing telegram rules i did love that guy he was pretty great he was amazing who was that guy is that someone we should know who it is or he's just credited as zachary yeah just one name <laughs> just Zachary. <laughs> oh, i was like maybe he's like a punk rocker that cleaned up to do a singing telegram dude had some golden pipes yeah he's credited in two other things ron Raphael. Shim Shiv Vivi, yeah, sure. An angel after the storm, and then he's in one called Squeeze Play from 1979. Wow, the trauma film. I wonder if it's even the same dude. Like that's the problem with IMDb is, like, I was looking up something on Andrew Nichols, you know, who was in Night Dreams and Cafe Flash, and they have another credit for an Andy Nichols that's the same dude, but it's a different. You know, it's just. Uh, your mileage is obviously going to vary. <laughs> and you're right that so much of the credits for this movie are not on IMDb because it's like there are people that are missing, people with wrong names. Just, yeah, it's a real mess as far as how this goes. Because 
even when it comes to like the Mark Wheaton interview, it's like, okay, Mark Wheaton, you're credited once on IMDb, but then you have a different credit in the actual credits of the movie. So it's like, okay, yeah, you were more involved than just the one thing that's on IMDb. My favorite is when they like they'll lob somebody with the same name. It's like they'll have a silent film actress that was in like one one D.W. Griffith movie, but then all of a sudden she's in like the swinging stewardesses. I mean, maybe it's the same lady. <laughs> maybe I you mean, know what people are into. You know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a weird part of the video store. That's a section beyond this section. Right, right. What did you think about the love interest part with her? The woman who just walks in. She doesn't really have a whole lot to do sometimes. She's kind of stupid. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> She's kind of a vessel. That's a vessel character. That's not really like a human She's just kind of like this blonde, like suburban wife. It's like a total, to me, it almost seems like a fantasy. Like this hot suburban blonde can come in and can like fawn over you and say, oh, you can do anything to me and I'll do anything you want me to. She's there. I mean, the actress was fine. She's pretty. When he put, he gave her, he injected his punk influence. I know he uses the word injected. It's like, that's nice. Uh, He's talking about his dick, people. But I know, subtle, but like, but she looks more like a, like a, she doesn't look punk. Like her makeover makes her look like, like an extra from like the video for like Rocky, like a hurricane by Scorpions. Or a zombie. They put so much. They went way over the top. Yeah. It's like Walking Dead. I'd love it. Like if the twist is like, like she ends up getting like kidnapped by David Lee Roth, who also had connections to the punk scene. Right. He talks to you about that. Uh, um, the Zero Club that they talk about. Was owned by David Lee Roth. Yeah, which is crazy. Top Jimmy. There's that guy, Top Jimmy, that was connected to that. That's mentioned in a Van Halen song. But I'm actually really glad, Adam, you mentioned that about Alan Sachs. Because that's actually, I had no idea he had real ties to it. But that does that does make it. He obviously had some good taste with the talent. He picked, because like Edward Culver involved, who's like one of the great like early punk rock photographers. And I mean, he still does great photography. But I mean, that's kind of more deep cuts. Like, yeah, obviously, he kind of went for like people, it'd be obvious to try and get like Exine Cervinka, right? But you get Texacala. Though I do love Exine. Well, before she went crazy. but Maybe she wasn't available. I did find it interesting that there's the two dream sequences that they have both Benito and Dubidio having dream sequences because at first I was like, okay, you know, this must be Joanna Went. And then I was like, no, that doesn't look like her. And then finally I was like, oh, okay, there's two dream sequences. I get this now. And that they actually kind of add a little bit to the movie. I, I thought that some of this stuff was well done. Sometimes it looks really cheap when it's in DeBedio's apartment, which is where we spend like 90% of our time. Like that looks, please, Heather, don't chafe under this, but it looks like porn aesthetic. You know, it's just like, yeah, maybe you could shoot this a little bit better. It doesn't have to be as flat as this is. I did find it interesting that they kept using like those shots of the audience. And then we find out at the end that the audience is actually there watching the movie because they were kind of integrated into the movie as we're going along. So it's like, oh, well, that's kind of a nice little thing that he's doing there. This whole movie is filled with like nice little things. Again, I don't know if they add up to 100%, but I do like a lot of pieces of this. And at the end, when they reveal that that's the audience, the filmmaker who's hanging out with a bunch of people who don't want to be there reveals that he used the most of that footage from the Joan Jett movie and he then faked the audience in his scene to match that. I don't know. It's so funny to get like a behind the scenes while you're watching the movie. 
you can't say it takes you out of this movie because everything takes you out of this movie. It's just harder for me to recommend the movie because of the, and he does, he puts it in on purpose, but all the, uh, like the real super violent stuff. Do you think the movie, the super violent images that he throws in that just happen to happen? Do you feel like it would have been a more palatable film if that wasn't there? It was less punk rock that way? You know, I, I don't know. It's always to me, it's sort of like not what you do, but how you do it. And sort of some of the integration of it feels kind of forced. In my opinion, and I'm not like some shrinking violet. In fact, I was, but no, but I mean, if you, you know, but no, I mean, like forced in a way where I don't, for me, it doesn't like work rhythmically or creatively. I mean, I get it, but I don't know. It just didn't do it for me, I guess. And I mean, I like, I mean, I love, you know, and I love a lot of stuff that's like, you know, considered offensive as far as art goes. Like some of it, I definitely, I mean, I could have done without the dead cat for sure. Far be it for me to tell somebody how to express themselves. I mean, it's kind of, I mean, when somebody kind of goes beyond the pale, you're kind of already taking yourself out of like ever being like a mainstream kind of person or deal. And I mean, I respect that. I just, I just feel like, I don't know, it's kind of, to me, punk isn't always about violence or being, I mean, to me, punk has never been about being shocking. Punk is just about being an individual and doing it yourself. And like the old school punk, because at this point of the era, punk is kind of shifting a little more hardcore too. like the earlier stuff. The screamers didn't sound like the bags. The bags don't sound like suicide. Suicide don't sound like the damned. You know, everybody sounded different. There wasn't like a, a uniform a uniformity in expression. I mean, that was the point of it, for it not to be uniform in expression. And if I can just make another production point, the cat wasn't dead. He just didn't want to call back Mike. Mike's lovely. Of course, any cat would love to call Mike. Mike is Mike is well-renowned. I'll have you know, sir, in the cat community. Cat <laughs> fancy. Cat the cat fancy. Meow. Cat fancy, goddammit, said, projection booth is is the perfect is perf perfect after watching this movie i actually for work have to watch uh cats and dogs part three uh pause on patrol or something about talking oh, Lord. talking cats and dogs god that's more offensive than to video <laughs> is that for the, your day job or for your podcast no for my day job how dare you wow i and i'm looking forward to it you handle much more high quality stuff on your podcast. I understand. Yeah. Like a talking cat, a talking cat. Oh, that's a great film. Oh, uh, right. I've, I've had to make some, some very ill fated creative decisions with video for my day job. So I feel you, I feel you. <laughs> We're not saying it's bad. We love everybody. We love everything. That's right. We love everything, especially, especially because it's a, it's an era of love, but I'm just saying the contrast of the two films. Um, but yeah, as a teenager, and maybe when you guys saw it too, when you get a peek into a world you don't live in, and this guy's just like, I'm just gonna do whatever the fuck I want. And that, you know, that kind of, it's a punk rock film about punk rock. That wasn't just me. Did Dubidio as a character seem kind of like a poser? It kind of goes with what you were saying about Alan not really being a punk rocker. You know, like Dubidio is not really a punk rocker. I always thought he, I thought, uh, Ray Sharkey was part of the scene, but he wasn't. He was an actor that auditioned and got the part. So you're right. It seems he seems out of it. Yeah, I mean, he seems like kind of almost like like this close to being a suitcase pimp. He is kind of like Benito's suitcase pimp. Like Benito, Benito's like the stripper making all of that money, getting all of that coin. And Debio's like, yeah, that's real good, baby. Okay, give me your money. Like he's he's got that kind of quality. Um, but I like Ray Sharkey. I did keep thinking like. 
If I had to play fantasy casting, what do you guys think if Lee Vang played DiBidio? Oh, I can see that. Wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah, and Lee Vang really had chops, too. He was he was Mr. Body in Clue. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he was. But right, there, that too, just like you need someone who knows how to shoot and finish the film, you need someone who can carry this movie. And yeah, I mean, he's a movie star. He's a big, you know, he's a great actor, Ray Sharkey. So yeah, but was he right? Could he play a punk rocker? Kind of, he kind of was, or just playing a guy with two earrings. Right. <laughs> well, only one after a while. <laughs> yeah, that, that was. I don't know. I like that scene when he pulled the earrings out. Well, I'm glad that they're there also to explain. He just ripped his earring out. Well, because it was shot so badly. <laughs> I mean, was anybody else expecting him to make some, like, homophobic comedy? He's like, oh, shit, now it's in the wrong year. Like, because you remember that whole thing in the 80s? Right ear, queer, left ear, buccaneer, or vice versa. I can't <laughs> never remember which buccaneer. it was. <laughs> yeah, because if you wear it in one whole? ear, you're like a pirate, well, and difference? if you wear it in the other. <laughs> oh, I see. It's, they both sound the same to me. Uh, <laughs> um, but that's the problem, Heather, is that you don't know which ear is the... Is the the wrong ear or the right ear. You don't know. So I, I had a earring when I was in high school and I just happened to, I thought the left ear would make sense. And luckily no one else knew the difference and no one questioned it. Why, why I had an earring was a better question. Mike, did you have earrings when you were younger or still do? I used to have one in the left ear and then the hole closed up, but yet it left a mark for whatever reason. So yes. <laughs> I did That's get it said. redone a few years ago, and then I let it close back up again. I did the whole – I did one and then two studs and then two studs and a couple of hoops. Wow. Uh, yeah, I went crazy. But luckily, that I became a waiter and like no earrings, so I saved my life. But they're still there, the holes. Anyway, let's talk about this film. Is that a bad? Is it bad that we're talking about earrings and so we don't have to talk about this movie? But we are talking about the movie. All right, because because it, it all goes back to to, to BDO's that name. <laughs> that was his nickname. I don't. I, and by the way, I thought that was so cool. <laughs> I was a teenager. <laughs> is that well, the imposer? No, no, I don't think, no. I mean, it actually. I'm laughing because it actually makes me think of another movie, um, Highway 61. Which is a great movie, and there, there's like a, a Quebecois cover band, and they're all like, "We do not just, it, uh, we do not just cover BTO, we also cover Metallica and Gun and Rose." <laughs> and so when I hear BTO, that's what I think of is somebody referring to Bachman Turner Overdrive. <laughs> oh, jeez, took me a while to figure that one out. BTO, yes, BTO. Um, they're taking oh, care of business, apparently. <laughs> um, this film, like, have you guys ever seen a film that on one hand, like, is so bad that you you have, like, a strong reaction, but yet you kind of respect it? Not to talk about another movie, but be da- uh, Bamboozled, Spike Lee's movie. I love that movie, but it fails so many places. The, the choice to do the weird accent for the lead. The video, shooting on video sometimes works and sometimes is annoying. But uh, I don't know. Have you seen that movie? I actually haven't. I've, I've actually do want. I've, I've wanted to see it for a while. I just haven't gotten around to it. I have seen it, and yeah, I do agree with you that there are some things in there where it's like, oh yeah, this is cool, and then others where it's like, oh yeah, no, this is this is pretty bad. Thanks, Spike. <laughs> Thanks, Spike. <laughs> Why did you let that happen, Spike? We trust you. But I guess the the appealing part about the Dubidio is it is like part really part. Of, it comes from something organic. Like they are real 
people from the punk scene in it. They're real pictures from the real photographer and, and artists. And so really good. It's just thrown in, it's all thrown in there, but you get to see that part that scene, that world, whether it's enjoyable is on you. Heather, I'm really glad that you brought up the whole faux runaway thing. And you, I had caught that one of the faux runaways was uh, a woman named Kathy Valentine. And I could not find anything about Kathy Valentine from the Go-Go's having a connection to the runaways, except that she apparently did try out for the runaways at one point. There's a story that she posted on her Facebook about that. And that I can't remember the name of that super awful manager that the runaways had. That would be Kim Fowley. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She does talk about how he just gave off this horrible vibe and that she wanted to get the fuck out of there as soon as she possibly could. I actually made a joke to to my husband while watching this and I'm like, this is Joan Jett was managed by Kim Fowley and somehow this is still sleazier to her. <laughs> Right. Fally's okay, and you're going to bust on this film? It's a joke. It's a joke. It's a joke. We don't know what happened. We weren't there. We weren't even there. No, I mean, trust me. Nobody, anybody with a daughter would not, with any reasonable mind, want her managed by Kim Fally. Like, I actually have creative admiration for Kim Fally, and he also coined the phrase rock and roll authority, which I have used copiously because it amuses me greatly. Um, and it's a great kind of slam to somebody like, oh, you lack rock and roll authority. <laughs> no, obviously not. Kim Fowley was, he was like Malcolm McLaren. You have like these guys that are kind of Svengali's and on one hand, they're, they're very brilliant. But on the other hand, they're sleazy as fuck and took advantage of people. But that's, that's often, sadly, what a lot of managers do in the industry, in the entertainment industry. Is it right? Absolutely not. And should we do better now? Let's hope. But it's funny because Great Rock and Roll Swindle is actually another kind of punk movie that has real life characters but implements fictive elements, which is something Dubidio does too. And also kind of an aborted project, correct? Well, a very messy one for sure. Yeah, because it originally was going to be this movie called Who Killed Bambi that Russ Meyer was going to direct. And they shot like a few things, but it, it fell apart, which I mean, as much as I love Russ Meyer, him with the pistols makes no sense. <laughs> <laughs> it makes absolutely. It was Russ Meyer There's... in it? No, no he was shooting no. it. It was uh, him shooting it and a screenplay by Roger Ebert again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you see a few of what they shot in um, the uh, the Filth and the Fury, which is a great documentary, including a young Sting as a um, as a rapist. Like he tries to rape Paul Cook. Um, I can't imagine why the band didn't want that uh, in the film. But yeah, but also um, another film that kind of was unfinished for years um, is Downtown 81, uh, which actually was made by somebody in the scene, though that's more of kind of a post-punk no-wave scene in New York, But because uh, Glenn O'Brien directed that, and you know, he made TV Party, worked for Andy Warhol, was genuinely part of the post-punk crowd, but yet like Basquiat in it. And, um, but the film was like unreleased for like 20 or 30 years. But it's really good. I do recommend Downtown 81. And again, kind of like Dubidio, it's not like a great movie as a movie. Does it have worthwhile value uh, because of like this, you know, its roots and some of the art presented? Absolutely. Well, it's kind of like the punk rock movie. I'm sure you've seen that. You probably picked it up for a dollar at, you know, Sam Goody or something, Suncoast. It's a, it's a total piece of shit, but there are some interesting concert, you know, bits of concert footage in there. Yeah. Yeah, so that's I think that's the best way to <laughs> to describe it. Sam Goody. Goody's got it. 
All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break, and I'm going to play a trio of interviews. First up, you'll hear from the credited writer of the film, Mark Scheffler. After that, you'll hear from musician Mark Wheaton. And last but not least, you will hear from the director, Alan Sachs Dubidio himself. And we'll be back with all of that right after these brief messages. Dark Destinations is a travelogue podcast unlike any other. Cities and towns distinguished by their oddity and the fact that they don't exist. Join us at Dark Destinations, where we explore the most infamous locations to be found in fiction. From Arkham to Zyera and every point in between, we risk life, limb, and our sanity for your listening pleasure. Dark Destinations can be found at fathermalone.com and on iTunes. Dusty McGowan's latest book, The Devil is Alive and Well, the auteur's cut, is available now in paperback, Kindle, and audiobook. Mental illness, isolation, and death? Now, that's my idea of a good time. Does the devil himself spend his off hours in dive bars? Where do Egyptian mummies go when they just can't seem to pass away? These, and many other important questions, are answered in this collection of stories that blend magic, realism, and dark comedy. The Devil is Alive and Well, the auteur's cut, may be found on Amazon, Apple Books, Audible, and all fine booksellers. You obviously love podcasts, but are you also a fan of movies and television? Do you want to listen to a show that reviews entertainment honestly and casts pretentiousness to the wind? That debates both film and TV topics in a fun, good-spirited way, while still getting to the heart of why we all love them so much? then don't miss the award-winning weekly podcast, The Hollywood Outsider. Now available on your favorite podcast app or at thehollywoodoutsider.com. This is Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast, Proudly Resents. And you listen to my favorite movie podcast, The Projection Booth. I know, it's messed up, right? Welcome to the interview portion of the show. First up, we're going to hear from the co-writer of Dubidio, Mark Scheffler. How does a nice boy like you become such a horrible person in the last house on the left? For girls and money, I guess. I was an actor in New York, and uh, I had a manager. Uh, walked into his office one day, and he said, uh, I have a movie role for you. And I had never done anything before. And he told me to go down to an office off of Fifth Avenue, around somewhere in the 40s, 45th Street, I think. Asked for two guys, one named Wes and the other named Sean, and tell them that I sent you. So I went down and I asked for Wes and Sean and I met them and I read the scene, got back to uh, my manager's office, walked in and he said, well, you must have done something right because you got the part. That was it. And Wes, of course, it was uh, Sean Cunningham and Wes Craven. Why was that one of your only acting roles that I know of or have you been in other things that I'm just not necessarily aware of? I know you were in like 30 Days to Die and I filmed your death, but what happens after you are junior? I watched the production of Last House really carefully. I was drawn to the sum of it, if that makes any sense to you. Even that little Fakakta independent $91,000 movie, I was actually drawn to the pageantry of movie making. And I started writing after that and realized that I didn't really want to be an actor as much as I wanted to tell stories. So like I said, I started writing. Ultimately, a couple of years later, three years later, four years later or something, sold my first script, sold, ended up selling, selling the first script I ever wrote. And that's what moved me to California. What was that first script like? 
it was about a bunch of poisonous snakes that get loose in a big city park. And the commercial director, Lee Lacey, who was in, uh, I was in business with on it, his agent at William Morris at the time sold it to NBC as a movie of the week, as a kind of an honest introduction to Hollywood. Uh, in the middle of this process, after they had paid me and after it was on the schedule and after everything was set, a new creative regime came in at NBC and shit-canned all the projects of the, of the previous uh, administration. Mine was one of them, so it never got made, but I got paid, I got an agent, I got an apartment and a car, and there I was, ready to go. So what do you do after that? I went back to doing stand-up and became one of the original paid regulars at the comedy store uh, in the same era and peerages like Robin Williams and Jay Leno and David Letterman, all of the, those guys, all my peers and my friends. And then I started writing TV shows. You could look on IMDb and see, I, I, I wrote a lot of TV shows I wrote and, and then ended up writing and producing some, but wrote a lot. Yeah. I was really surprised to see uh, that you were on the Brady Brides for quite a while. It looks like. Yes, yes I was. It was fun. I mean, you know, they were all nice. Everybody was like, and that particular crew was really, really nice from Sherwood Schwartz to his son, Lloyd Schwartz, to Lloyd's sister, Hope Sherwood, who was a a young writer on the show. And, you know, that was a very nice crew to work for and and, uh, nice to be around and, and, you know, part of TV history. So that was nice, too. So how does the BDO come into your life? Alan Sachs and I are really good friends and we became friends instantly back in the day when we met, when an agent of mine, Beth Uffner, sent me to meet Alan, uh, who was looking for a writer to work with him on a, and the late Stanley Myron Handelman on a project they were doing at NBC. So Alan and I met, we became friends. And it turns out that Alan uh, uh, at the time uh, was a long distance runner and I'm a long distance runner. At least I I was until I got hit by a car a couple of years ago, but I'm a long distance runner. And he and I started running together and we became good friends. So whenever Alan would do something from a certain point in time on, if there was a place for me, he would try to find it. One day he called me up and said, want to go take a run? And I said, yeah, sure. So we're running through Beverly Hills. And I said, what's up? And he tells me that a guy he knows who owns a post-production facility has I forget how much film I'm going to say 35 or 40 minutes of film that was shot. And what happened was somebody started shooting this film with Joan Jett and they ran out of money and they couldn't raise any money. Somebody acquired the negative. I just, this is getting to sound a little too filmy. Let me know. This guy, Ted Gomillion, who owned kind of a mid-level post-production facility called Gomillion Sound. They either they being the production company originally on this film did post-production at his place and couldn't pay the bill. Yeah. I think that's what it was. I think they did post-production at his place, couldn't pay the bill and he just sees the negative. Right. So he had the right. And Alan knew this new Ted Gomillion and Alan looked at the film and said, I might have an idea. Let me call you back. So then Alan go in this run Alan tells me about this, tells me the story and asks me if I'll, if I'll meet him at Gomillion Sound and look at this like 35, 40 minutes or whatever it is. Right. So I do. And I, I look at it and it's just like, you know, like the middle of a film. It's part of a film about 35 minutes. 
And Alan said, what do you think? What could we do with this? And I said, I don't know yet. Let me, let me think about it. So I went home and fired up a big doobie and got real freaking high and kept thinking and thinking and thinking. Had a rough idea. Something came to me. Called Alan up and said, let's go on a run tomorrow and we'll talk about what I think. So we went on a run. The, the bare bones of the idea that I had was a situation like this, you have to face the, your production limitations, right? We knew that GoMillion wasn't going to put up a lot of money, but he did say to Alan that he would put up some money if we could figure out how to finish it, okay? So Alan, well, what if we did this? Instead of trying to like finish this, which would be a fucking nightmare. Why don't we just use this and create some kind of other mythology of which this is a part so that all we have to do is shoot interstitial scenes that we can figure out how to cut in and out of this. So Alan liked that idea. He said, yeah, I like that. So then Alan and I got together and then came up with the character of Dubidio that, you know, and we, we came up, with, we took the real scenario that was going on, that this was a person who had, started to do a film and couldn't finish it. And we just amped it up and raised the stakes by putting him in business with gangsters instead of legitimate businessmen who could take a loss on their, on their taxes. Right. So we made an outline. Alan and I wrote, wrote up an outline, gave it to Ted Gomillion and said, we, we can shoot all the locations around here. You've seen the film. We created this character, the video got Ray Sharkey to do it. And that was it. <laughs> and then we just made it. We shot those little scenes and cut everything together. Well, and then it's like you go one level higher, and then you've got the commentary on top of it going as well. That was an afterthought, but yes. How does El Duce get involved? He was a friend of Alan. I didn't know him. I mean, I had no relationship with him. So, yeah, all of those characters. DeBidio was kind of like a combination of some real people that David uh, that Alan and I knew, okay? Alan being one of them. Elements of... of of people. Alan is clearly not, not that manic, but we know people, people who were once alive, who were as manic as you saw as the BDO. <laughs> How much footage do you estimate that you guys ended up shooting? I have no idea. I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I really don't know. I just know it was a lot of fun. I remember, I remember this being a lot of fun. This little challenge that we had was was and I love Alan and Alan and I are still really really good friends. So this was all him. This is this is this was his baby. I mean, after you come up with the story idea, are you helping out like with casting and behind the scenes and all that stuff? I don't imagine you just. Oh no, Alan and I did everything together. We did everything together. No, I was on this like I did everything with him. Yeah, and Alan and I are, like really really close. <laughs> You know, we're just really good friends. We've stayed good friends since, I'm going to say, 1977. Yeah, this was a lot of fun to do. This is quirky and nutty and fucking, out, you know, as outrageous as as uh, our version of a John Waters film. Yeah, I can't say I've ever seen anything like it. Oh, no, there's nothing like it. <laughs> it's just bizarre film. So tell me a little bit more about some of the people that were in it. Tell me about working with Ray Sharkey or, and Durf Scratch. The way we got Ray Sharkey was, I think either Alan knew him or somebody Alan knew, knew Ray. Alan had an apartment like off of Sunset near Doheny. And we, we did auditions there. And we wrote 
I forget one of the manic riffs that we pulled for um, the videos audition, but a bunch of people read for it. And Alan and I would sit there and just close our eyes, you know, and listen to it. And no disrespect to any of the actors who read, they were all good. But there's a certain symphony when, like, it's coming out of the right voice. There's a certain thing that tells you. And Alan and I were in sync. We were on the same page. So we were listening with, you know, the same set of ears. Ray Sharkey came in and we goofed around for a little bit. He sat down and he started reading the beat. He looked at it for a few minutes, started reading the video. And Alan and I just, we had our heads down, we were listening. And at some point in time, literally, like I think the same moment in time, we looked it up at each other and, and we looked it at each other's eyes and we just went, yeah, that's it. That's it. We're hearing it. And that's how Ray got involved. Alan knew Derps, I think, because Alan was always into that music scene, that, that avant-garde music scene. Whatever, whatever the next wave of music is from the wave of music that is now, Alan is involved in it. He just somehow knows. He's always like a step ahead musically. Then uh, uh, we got Len Lesser, who, of course, is of Seinfeld fame, right? And, and Clint Eastwood fame to play the bad guy. And that was in The Girl, who was nice. It was also pleasant. Four or five people in the cast. That was it. So it sounds like you guys had a, just a blast making this movie. It is. It really is. Well, I told you that like initially. It was a lot of fun. I try to have fun, no matter what it is I'm working on, I try to have fun, because otherwise I'd have a real job. So were you there during the editing? Because the edits in that movie is cr- are crazy. I was there. My recollection is that I was around for pretty much that whole production. You know, aspects of that whole production. So once it's all done, what happens? Do, do you have a premiere? Uh, do you immediately try to sell it on video? What, what's the, uh, the the story there? I think we had a screening. When I saw it, I just looked at Alan and I said, you know, no one's ever going to buy this. It's cute and it's fun for us. And we, I don't think anyone's ever going to buy this. A screening of it at some theater on uh, Beverly or yeah, Beverly, La Brea, somewhere in that area, where uh, the guy running the film actually put the film back in the cans and just put the cans out on the street. <laughs> something really different. I said, yeah, Alan, it is really different. You're right. I agree with you. It looks, for us, it's fun, you know? And I didn't say that because I thought it was like horrible work. I just thought it was so kitsch, you know, so like in such a narrow category. So I don't know. Not many people like it. There, there are certain people I've worked with in my life. I don't care what they're doing. If they want me to work on it with them, I'll do it. Because it's always, it's fun. You know, and you make Alan and me. Uh, we did a couple of pilots. We did. Uh, let me see. Yeah, mostly pilots. A couple of couple of other things. I'd have to look on my resume because it's a long time ago. Um, but it's just one of those things where you know you meet certain people in your life. Like there's also people I've met. I don't care what they're doing. I don't want to be a part of it. You know, because they're assholes. You know, but. Mostly it's the people I've worked with. I'm, I'm very lucky. I've been pretty cool. So there are some people, like I said, they call me and they say, hey, I'm doing this. Say, yeah, no worries. I'm in. Count me in. Yeah. You know, I mean, like I said, otherwise get a real job. I remember being just so happy to see in 1992, which was the Happy Days reunion special. Yes. I wrote and uh, co-produced that. Again, another project 
that was a ball to do because of the people involved. Everybody involved. Just great to work with. Just fun. Just pleasure to go to work. Can you tell me a little bit about 30 Days to Die? I contributed. Let's, let's not get Writers Guild nonsense. Let's just say that uh, I had ideas that I wouldn't say were really writing. Okay. Um, again, somebody I knew came to me and said, uh, hey, look, I'm doing this film. Uh, I, you know, I don't have much money, but it could be fun and whatever and take a look at it. So I read the script and I said, need some work. You know, the script that I read, this is what I suggest you do with it. You know, if you can do that, uh, you know, I'll spend a few days in Lake Arrowhead with you. They made some changes and we got it to a point where it looked okay. And I said, yeah, sure. Okay. So that was it. I went, spent a few days with some young girls and some people and had some fun. What was it like working on um, How Bugs Bunny Won the West? My experience with that is that Warner Brothers is not used to having to pay residuals on things that have animation in them, but because they had they requested, because they specifically said, we want to have a live action host. And I said, sure, what the fuck? Now they have to pay me residuals. <laughs> That's a whole other story. It Again, that was an interesting thing. I was a young writer, you know, newly signed at William Morris. Was that William Morris? Yeah, I think it was at William Morris at the time. You know, they sent the agents sent me out for this to meet the guy who ran the, you know, the Bugs Bunny division of Warner Brothers, his name was Hal Gear. That's G-E-E-R. And you could, you could see his name on a zillion cartoons. So he had his own little fiefdom over in, on the Warner Brothers lot. So I go over and meet with him. And uh, I was already approved by Warner Brothers. So it was like a, a thing that my agent had introduced me to the Warner Brothers people previously. They liked me. And uh, that's how it works for writers, by the way. I don't know if you know anything about that, but uh, that's when you're starting out as a writer, uh, especially as like a TV writer, because that's like, you know, you can become really employable and become a, 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 a real earner. Your first season previous to, you know, any kind of employment, your agents and managers will start setting meetings with their contacts at the studios and networks so that they can put a face to a name. And when hiring starts coming around, they can then suggest you. That's, you know, so... I'd already been through that process and the Warner Brothers people liked me and they were sort of looking for something for me to do. This Bugs Bunny thing came up. And so now I'm in the meeting with Hal Gear, who was a skinny little man with big buck teeth and very cartoon like, which doesn't surprise me. Right. And in his office to further amp up the surreality of all of this, he had life size stuffed caricatures of all the Warner Brothers cartoons. So there was like a five and a half foot Bugs Bunny. There was a five foot Porky Pig. I mean, and they were in his office. These were like, so you go in and you have a meeting with him sitting at the desk and there's this board of directors of cartoon characters surrounding it. So it was kind of interesting. So he and I talked for a while and apparently Warner Brothers had said to him something along the lines of, unless you hate this kid, give him the job. Right. So I made a, enough of an impression on him in the meeting that he said, okay, uh, we'll have the studio call and close the deal and you can start Monday. So he and I had some meetings. We went and looked around the locations in the back lot where we were going to shoot the live action stuff. We pulled the cartoons. You know, I, I spent, I don't know, a couple of weeks at Warner Brothers screening every Bugs Bunny Western cartoon and the footage that I wanted to use 
made notes of the time codes and strung a story together, put an outline together. We hired Denver, Denver Pyle, shot the interstitial, uh, you know, in, uh, takeoffs and landings. And there you go. So you almost did with this what you're going to end up doing with the BDO by taking pre-existing footage and tying it together into a new story. Yes, I did this before I did the video, correct. So how about now? What are you up to these days? I'm back doing stand-up. I got to the point in my life when uh, I think my lucky stars, I don't have to do anything. So I have gone back to the thing that was my first love, which is getting up on a stage and making people laugh with just me and a microphone. I have to say you have a very young voice. (laughs) Yeah, I'll be 70 in a couple of months. It's the immaturity that uh, is the center of my soul. It comes out through my voice. Well, hey, thank you so much for your time. This was great talking with you. My pleasure. Anytime. Up next, we're going to hear from musician Mark Wheaton. Can you tell me a little bit more about you and how you became a musician? I uh, kind of got into music uh, when I went to college in Seattle in um, 1968. I lived in a house with a group of people, and we were all into listening to music and kind of exploring the idea of becoming musicians. It gradually evolved into a rock band that played uh, in Northwest. It was kind of like a bar band, but they also did original material and played around the Northwest, played in Seattle a lot. That kind of was a precursor to the whole um, kind of beginnings of the punk scene in the Northwest. So at some point, I stopped working with this first band, which was called Uncle Cookie. I uh, became a keyboard player for another band called Chinus Comitas. Chinus Comitas was also part of the punk scene of Seattle and toured a lot. And at some point, uh, and Chinus Comitas was also kind of associated in some ways with um, a lot of people who were artists in Seattle. One of these artists was uh, this woman, Sheila Klein. At some point, we decided to go and do some shows in Los Angeles, and Sheila said, well, if you're going to Los Angeles, you should look up my friend Johanna Wendt, who was also from Seattle. So that's what happened. So eventually, I started working with Johanna Wendt instead of uh, Chinese Canutas, and that was basically uh, the beginnings of that whole period. What was that first meeting with Johanna Wendt like? Actually, what happened was when we got to L.A., we looked up to go to some clubs and we saw that uh, Johanna Wendt was playing at this club, Hong Kong Cafe, because I knew her name from Sheila. We went to see it. So my first encounter with her was seeing her performing at this club. And then she came over and visited us. The band was staying at a friend's house. And so she came over to visit and we just kind of became friends. And so when that band broke up, she invited me and my brother Brock to play in her band. So that was basically what happened. What was her act like when you first saw her? Very uh, 
visual and chaotic and crazy. She, uh, you know, would gather a bunch of, I guess what you would call them props and costumes, which are basically things that she found in dumpsters and would kind of concoct into costumes by using glue and sewing and so forth. And, and then she would pack all this stuff in cardboard boxes and take it to the show. In the course of the show, she would just start pulling things out of the box and put on a costume and say crazy things into the microphone and throw things at the audience and jump around. And that's what it was. There was no organized kind of idea of what she was doing. She wasn't, she hadn't pre-thought it too much other than what she gathered up as her props and costumes. Musically, it was just make a bunch of noise on stage and start playing when she got on stage and stop when she stopped. We didn't rehearse. We didn't plan anything. It was just completely spontaneous. Around what year was this when you joined up with the band? That was about 1979. Uh, I think in reality, the first show that I did with her was early 1980 sometime. So there was no pre-planning? You just kind of jammed? No attempt for chord structure or anything like that? It was just go out and do what you want to? Wow. It wasn't improv like pre-improvisation like jazz or new music it was it was my brother on drums and myself on synthesizer and then sometimes we'd ask other people to play but we were kind of coming from being in a rock band but there was no planning so there was no chords no music you know no melodies nothing really (laughs) what was that like to go against probably your instincts Well, it was very liberating in a lot of ways because, you know, you could just react to what was happening at the moment. You didn't have to think about it or worry that you were maybe making a mistake or any of those aspects. But it was a little bit, you had to kind of like say, okay, this is okay. I'm not really faking it or whatever, you know. Well, just because the expectation of rock bands was that, you know, you figured out all your stuff and you got up on stage and performed it and tried not to make mistakes and tried to put energy into it, you know. So with Johanna, it was just, you know, literally start at the beginning and stop at the end, and that was it. So I imagine there's not a lot of rehearsals that are going on. There were no rehearsals at all in those days. And it was great in that sense because the band members could come in and just do the gig and didn't have to think about it. You didn't have to worry about it. I mean, later on, Johanna started becoming more structured. She would start to storyboard ideas. and But even then, I would come up with music for her that, you know, was pretty much whatever I wanted to come up with, and that's what it was. It never was like a art-directed or like a film project where things are analyzed and say, well, maybe we should do more of this or less of that or whatever. We never did any of that. We just, you know, trusted our instincts and went with it. So I know the dirty little secret of performance art is that you are making money hand over fist and able to support your lifestyle completely with that, I'm sure. So what are you doing to keep bread coming in while you're working on that? You know, we all work day jobs. Johanna had a day job. My brother worked at a motorcycle repair shop. And before that, he worked at a clothing store. There was a part of L.A. on Melrose that was kind of the new wavy boutique part of LA where there were a lot of shops that catered to the cult 
culture at the time. And so there was a store there called Let It Rock, and my brother worked there, which was a rock and roll clothing store. And uh, I worked at used record stores a lot, really just rudimentary day job kind of stuff. What was that collaboration like when you guys would work together? She really focused on what she was going to do. And like I said, that was primarily just her roots. I don't know if you know what her performing roots before she was performing in rock clubs. She was doing street theater with a person named Tom Muren, who was a kind of a, a performance art comedian who originally was a lawyer and kind of turned his back on being a lawyer and started, he moved to New York and started, uh, doing avant-garde theater at places like La Mama and, and those kind of things. And eventually he decided to just go out on the road and perform, you know, wherever. He met Johanna in Seattle in the earlier part of the seventies and they would just do these street theater performances where they would gather up props and, and costume ideas from things that they found on the street and then just pull them out and do wacky things. There was no music. There was no, you know, it wasn't in a venue. It was just literally like at a farmer's market or wherever they happened to be. And they would travel all around the country and they went to Europe and performed in London and, and then eventually came back to the United States and Johanna ended up deciding to stay in Los Angeles and Tom stayed in New York. So when Johanna stayed in Los Angeles, that's when she kind of started the whole performing at punk club kind of thing, as opposed to being just on the street. Really, in terms of her thing that she did in those days, it was pretty much an extension of that, just like find things and come up with fun things to do and then go to the show and do it, you know, And, and a lot of her impulse came from like dream imagery and allowing her subconscious to kind of take over so that she was, it was almost like she was in a kind of a, like a a trance state when she was performing. She was like performing these things that were just kind of spontaneously coming out of her that were inspired by the, the props and costumes she found. The purpose of doing the music was to create an intensity and an energy that she could feed off of to do what she was doing. Initially, that's all it really was. It was like she would say, oh, we got a show at the Hong Kong this weekend. Uh, can you get some people together? And I would call up some friends and say when the showtime was, and we'd go and do the show. And that was it, literally. I mean, there was no collaboration in the sense of trying to figure it out. Later, when we started doing stuff that wasn't with a, a backing band, um, where it was more like... Uh, me coming up with pre-recorded kind of soundscapes that she used. So I would play tapes in the time it was cassettes, like loops of cassettes. And I would have maybe five or six cassette decks playing. And some of them would have rhythms and some would have sound effects and voices and electronic effects and just whatever I could find, just kind of what she was doing, but with tapes. And then I would bring all these different loops up on a mixing board and kind of dub mix them where I would pull things up and down in the mix to kind of fit what she was doing. So there was no band. It was just her on stage, but that was the kind of the sound backdrop. And then later that evolved into 
actually using computers and samples and sequencing software to create little soundtracks that were more musical. So it eventually evolved, you know, but the earliest days, it was really just being up on stage and doing, you know, just kind of letting it go. There is, you know, some good evidence of that that's out there that people can see. I mean, we have videos of that period up on Vimeo and and so forth. So you can kind of see some of the evolution of all that stuff. How many years did you guys collaborate together? I mean, I'm still collaborating with her. I mean, the last time we did a show as such was 2007. But, you know, I've been working with her, helping her um, collect her archives and digitize videos and kind of maintaining the archive. And uh, I don't know if she's going to be doing many, you know, performances like she used to, but she does have a show coming up at a gallery here in L.A. soon. So um, it'll probably be more like, a show that shows her costumes and plays videos and that kind of thing. You have recorded a bunch of stuff over the years. Did you kind of break away from her and start playing other stuff? Is that like during fallow periods or, or how does, how do you balance your work with her, your day job, and then also being a musician on top of that with other bands and with your own stuff? Most of my own stuff is kind of derived from things that I created for Johanna, but I didn't, but, you know, and I would put those out as recordings um, and kind of revise them so that they worked as recordings as opposed to just being a soundtrack to a performance. But a lot of that source material is kind of what I worked off of to do my own projects. And then working with Johanna led to working with other performance art people. Like uh, I worked with a group called The Shrimps for a long time and uh, would do a similar kind of thing of composing backdrop scores that we would perform or play while they were performing. I also did some sound for survival research laboratories for a while. And for a while, I was also in a band. There was plenty of time. I mean, Johanna would do maybe one show a month at, the, at her most active, you know, and sometimes in one show a year at other times. So there was plenty of time to do other things. So how did uh, Debedio come about for you? Basically, Johanna got approached, I guess, by Alan Sachs to um, be in the film, in a scene. I kind of went along with her for that scene, and also we were asked to do, for it to be like a Johanna performance, so that there was music that went along with what she was doing on the, during the scene, which was a nightmare. You know, you know the scene that she's in, the Benny's Nightmare scene. So what happened was Alan Sachs had worked out a deal with a, a studio called Mystic Studios, which was run by a guy named Doug Moody, to record things that he needed for the film. And so when I went in the, the studio to do the music for that scene with Johanna, I kind of hit off a good relationship with Doug Moody. And then at some point, in a lot of the the Mystic Records Artists were featured on that in the movie and on the soundtrack, like uh, the Mentors and the Detroit and Social Distortion. And I can't even remember all the bands that performed on it. But he was using as the the score for the film. He was using cuts off the first Lounge Lizards album. But when it came time to do the soundtrack album, which was part of the deal where he was using 
that Moody's studio in exchange Doug was going to be releasing the soundtrack album. It came time to do that, but Lounge Lizards wouldn't let him use their music on the soundtrack album. Because the music that I did for that Benny's Nightmare scene was kind of somewhat like that in the sense that it had saxophone and this kind of groovy, jazzy feel to it. He basically asked me to get together that same group and do little kind of pseudo score pieces that would be on the soundtrack album. And then he also had recorded a bunch of his commentary on the film. We interlaced our little kind of soundtrack pieces with his commentary with a cut by one of the artists, you know, and so it was kind of like a little, I don't know what you would call it, but it was more than a soundtrack album. It's kind of like an audio version of the movie, basically. And I was in charge of putting all that together. Uh, I wasn't recording the bands themselves because they were using tracks they had already recorded for other projects or whatever. But I was mixing them into this thing that I was doing along with trying to figure out how to get his dialogue stuff mixed into it. So, you know, it was kind of a, a an interesting creative process. Had you ever done anything like that before? Well, not really. You know, it kind of came about pretty organically, so I wasn't really thinking about it in terms of, you know, whether it was hard or something I'd done before. It was just kind of like, this would be fun. Let's try this. Let's try that, you know. And what was it like working with Alan Sachs? Well, I didn't actually work with him very much, you know, because I was in the studio doing that, and I would meet him on the set sometimes. We got along fine, but we weren't like pals or hanging out being friends or anything. It was just, he was more kind of somebody that Johanna knew. And I was just working on the music and he would come in into the studio and check it out and was very enthusiastic about, about what we were doing. So that's what it was. That's, at least that's what I remember. One other kind of interesting story related to Dibidio that I don't know if anybody's told you, and that is that, that Benny's Nightmare Cut that we did uh, there was a San Francisco band called um, Veronica Lipgloss, and Johanna actually discovered them not that long ago, and I don't even know if they still exist, but they had posted a cover version of that same song up on their website, and this is like pre-Spotify and all that. It was a pretty great version, but the fact that they even heard it in the first place, because that, you know, first of all, that movie didn't get a lot of distribution, but then the, the soundtrack album, which is from Mystic, pretty much barely got released. I mean, I don't even know how many copies actually went in, out into the public, but not very many. But somehow they heard that cut and did the, the cover version of it. You've done other things for movies, and I'm very curious how you've got in, into that. You know, you've even done, as far as I know, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but like doing, you know, work on different documentaries and, and, um, yeah, doing a lot of like sound mixing and things like that. Like for, I mean, as far as I know, you're even still working on that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, what happened was my wife and I, uh, my wife's a performer and a singer. And so it was kind of convenient because I could keep doing what I was doing and, it was kind of fit with what she was doing as well. So we would do a lot of, we got into a lot of recording in our bedroom of our apartment 
we had a separate bedroom that was basically a studio and we would buy gear and equipment and, you know, an e-track recorder and so forth and just basically do everything right there. This is during the 80s. And then at some point, we moved into another house where it was an entire house with a basement. So we decided to build a studio in the basement. As a result, I just started doing that as a business as opposed to having a day job. I was just basically running the studio like a commercial studio. You know, I would start getting jobs from people. So that would include a lot of film projects where if it it fit the space that I was in, you know, I could record, you know, a composer could come in and we record a string section or um, I'd help them mix something or, you know, it really depended on the job, what I would do. Sometimes it was sound design. Sometimes it was, you know, mixing a score. Sometimes it was doing a sound mix for the entire film and usually low budget films. It was just kind of part of the process of having a studio for hire, you know, kind of jobs that would come in. Did I rewrite that you had uh, your hands in Little Miss Sunshine a bit? Yeah. I've been pretty close friends with Jonathan and Valerie for many, many years. Uh, They used to have a show called um, The Cutting Edge, which was a, a music show. In those days, it was called Cable Access. Like if you had cable television, there was like a a station or two that would be kind of like local programming, but um, sometimes it would be more creative. There's a show on there called The Cutting Edge that they were the producers of, and that kind of featured a lot of artists like R.E.M. and whoever were the hot artists of the day but weren't like mainstream pop. I would do some music projects for them, like little bumper things, for between segments of their show and that kind of thing. Over the years, occasionally they've asked me to work on a project, and one of them was Little Miss Sunshine. And basically, what we did was we were hired to do the karaoke music that the kids performed at the end of the film. And it was supposed to be like karaoke, like cheesy productions, but they would hand a cassette to the guy and he would play it, and then they would perform to it. So, and they didn't want to pay for publishing on any of that. So we would do, um, public domain tunes like Yankee Doodle Dandy and America the Beautiful and so forth. And then we would do these kind of like big, cheesy synthesizer instrumental versions of those songs. So that's what they used in the film. It was actually a great thing because, because they were public domain, we were able to copyright the arrangement of the tunes. Over the years, we've, you know, collected little tiny chunks of publishing money from those arrangements, which is pretty funny considering what it was. And we've done other things with them. We did some commercials with them. We did a, we composed a bunch of music for some uh, X Games commercials, I think in 1990. And we also did a Priceline, a series of Priceline ads with them. So we've done various projects over the years. And what are you working on these days? Um, well, I still have my studio, so I work a lot of it nowadays. I still do some film stuff. People call me up and they want to, you know, record string sections for a low-budget film or whatever. I do that, but I also uh, work with uh, local musicians who are working on a, you know, self-produced project that they want to put on Bandcamp or up on SoundCloud or whatever. So I do a lot of that. That's basically it. 
I have to ask you, is that you actually on the cover of Mark Wheaton Plays America's Favorite Award-Winning Tunes? Yes, it is. Yeah. It's a great photo. <laughs> well, it's just us goofing around down in the down in the studio, and that my photo just kind of clicked for us, so we thought we'd use it. It's so great. <laughs> it's like almost Esquivel, but not quite. Yeah, but there are quite a few sellers in here. So where is the best place for people to keep up with you and all your stuff? On the Bandcamp, there's a Catasonic, the record label is called Catasonic Records, and there's a bandcamp.catasonic.com, and uh, that has uh, all my stuff up there that I've done on my own and with the shrimps and with Johanna Wendt. There's a Johanna Wendt section up there with a lot of uh, uh, like uh, board mixes of shows that we did over the years. My wife's stuff is up there, and then some of the stuff we put out on Catasonic Records in the 90s is also up there. So it's a pretty complete archive of, of things. Mr. Wheaton, thank you so much for your time. This was great talking with you. Sure, I hope it gives you some, uh, some good stuff for your podcast. And last but not least, here is director and DeVito himself, Alan Sachs. I'm very curious about your background and how you got into show business. I went to a graduate program at Brooklyn College because I wanted to maintain my uh, 2S, my student status. I didn't want to go to Vietnam. So I took a class in broadcasting for the hell of it. I thought it was interesting. I, didn't, I was like surprised that they were offering in, in graduate school a class in television. I always liked television. So I, I took that class and then I just, I really liked the subject. So I, I went on for a master's degree in that, in that area. Yeah. And then from there, I, um, I did an internship at ABC and the internship was um, in research. And I thought that that was going to be like, I would be researching stories for different programs, like the Ben Casey television series, doing something like that. I didn't realize that the research was really dealing with the ratings, the shares, and what they call today the metrics. That that was my first job in like broadcasting. And then I kind of worked my way up and got into the programming department. That was the department that did the programs. And um, that was my start. That was... 1964. How was that climb into doing like the production development and the the producing that you would eventually do? I mean, it sounds like it was a pretty arduous uh, journey. None of this was really planned, although I did want to be on the creative side. So when I got into the programming department, that's where I thought I would be most happy. That wasn't an easy task to get to get a job in that department. Because those were like um, Brandon Tartikoff, rest his soul. So he, he talked about beggars and the choosers. And the beggars were the people that were selling. And the choosers were the people that were picking what they were buying. So that's when working at the network, I was a chooser. But that's not really where it made me happy. I wanted to be exactly 
in the production, in the creation of things. So I, I did that for a while. I wound up when when I was doing research at ABC, the research segued into something called program testing. So I was the person that was supervising the program, the testing of programs. And what that was about was it was like focus groups. They had here in Los Angeles, they have a place called the Preview House, which I think is, well, it's now as Harmony Gold, but it's still there. The network would rent a service and there would be like 300 people sitting and watching the show, the pilot, and twisting dials. And and that would register, it almost looked like a cardiogram. And you would see what, what part of the show they liked, what part they didn't like. And I was the network research guy that stayed on top of that, which was, again, it wasn't exactly the creative job I wanted to get into. However, it did allow me a real understanding of what audiences were going for and what they wanted. So it was very satisfying. So I did that for a couple of years and then um, and then I got into the programming department and then after that I um I created um Welcome Back Carter and actually got that sold and it turned into a big hit. That happened. That that was like not something I was planning. I was really fortunate that it happened, but the idea I I saw a vacuum for school programming. There were no school shows. And I always liked shows about juvenile delinquents. That was my then movies, like The Blackboard Jungle, Rebel Without a Cause. That's what I liked the best. So I, so I wanted to develop a television series with that in mind. And that's what happened with Welcome Back, Kata. But what's interesting, um, I, doing a podcast, which is... Um, about the punk scene, and it was about a murder in the punk scene um, that I became part of. And I open up the podcast saying my first punk experience was going to see the movie Blackboard Jungle with my friends. And what we did was we wore, we were like a little junior gang, and we walked down the street really like feeling empowered because there were 10 of us, and we walked to a theater on, um, 86th Street in, in Brooklyn. It was called the Lowe's Oriental. And that's where Blackboard Jungle was playing. I think it was, I think it was 19, you'd have to fact check me, but I think it was like 55. And there were a couple of movies that came out that year. Rebel Without a Cause, Blackboard Jungle, and uh, there was one other one. But but Blackboard Jungle was playing that year and uh, premiering and we were sitting up in the balcony. We were very excited. And so we didn't know what to expect other than it was a movie about the guys that I like knew. This was my friends, the juvenile delinquents. And the movie opened up with the downbeat of rock around the clock. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock rock. Boom. And when that hit, we went crazy in the balcony. We rioted. We threw things off the balcony. It was insane. They had to stop the movie. It was so it was so out of control. And that happened across everybody of my generation that was going to see that movie. Those riots happened across the across the United States. And probably also happened 
in Europe too. You could Google that, the Black Boy Jungle movie riots. You could see that. It was amazing. It was really an important part of my <laughs> my existence. What was it about that movie and that time? Why do you think that that hit with you so spectacularly? It was rebellious. I mean, we got to wear black leather jackets and motorcycle boots. I mean, that was what we were wearing. And that's the punks picked that up, you know, 25, 30 years later. But that was in that movie. Oh, the other movie was The Wild One by Marlon Brando. And they were wearing that, that kind of clothing. So it was like a rebellious kind of, you know, attitude. And, and in, in that movie, I think it was Terry Moore, the actress, she said to Brando, she said, he, the gang he was in was called the Black Rebels Motorcycle Club. And that's a punk band today. What are you rebelling against? And he looked at her and said, what do you got? And that was the same attitude that teenagers had at that period of time. That's what Jim Stark had in Rebel Without a Cause. It's what the characters in um, in Blackboard Jungle had. And I related to Blackboard Jungle more than the others because I was going to an inner city school growing up in Brooklyn. So, that, so I was relating to that. But I related to all of them. Anything related to being juvenile delinquency interested me. And in the same way, that's what drew me to the punk world. You were program developer for the Norless tapes. And I've always been fascinated yeah. by that. Was that supposed to be, was that a pilot for a series? It was, it was, it was, um, who was in Darren McGavin? Was that the actor's name? No, that was Kolchak. This one was, um, Roy, Th Roy Th I think Roy Finnis, Finnis, T-H-I-N-N-E-S, I think Finnis. Um, oh, he was in, he was in, um, yeah, that was a pilot that never made the grade. I watched it recently. I have to say it still holds up. Really? I haven't seen it in a long time. I liked Roy Finnis. I thought he was a great actor. You know, that, that period of time, what was it? Let me try to remember the year. That was like 1973. Um, oh, 73. Yeah. That preceded Welcome Back, Carter. So that was before I was an independent. Carter, I became an independent producer on. But that, there, I was the program executive at a company called Freeze Metro Media Producers Corporation, which turned into um, the Chuck Freeze Corporation. And I was the head development guy for those. So again, I didn't get really to, to pick that show. I kind of supervised the development of that, but that wasn't really my creative baby as, it, as other things have down the line. But I enjoyed that show. And what was Kolchak about? I forgot, I forget. Thinking about that today, you know, a reporter going after the supernatural stuff, that would be a good show. That period of time, there were a lot of actors. They were strong leading men and good looking guys. And they were like, it's like um, Chris George. He was in a show called The Immortal. It all kind of spun off of David Jansen and The Fugitive. That was a, a way traumatic series were developed. You had a, like a, a heartthrob actor. I'm not talking about George Hamilton. I'm talking about tough, tough kind of like Darren McGavin. He was a gravelly kind of guy. That was the appeal. So I want to talk a little bit about Welcome Back, Cotter. As far as how did that one come about? 
what was your influence? What was Gabe Kaplan's influence? Because it, it's such an interesting show to watch reruns of that and just the way that the show changed over time, the way obviously John Travolta kind of breaks out and, and it becomes so focused on him. But those early episodes were so interesting with Kaplan, especially doing like his shtick at the beginning and the end, and then the rest of the story and the way that that would fit together. The conception was for him to do a joke at the beginning and the end. That was the way, you know, we were going to be doing the, the topper or the uh, the teaser. So that that's what we were going to do. And the way that show happened, I was producing Chico and the Man. I was brought in, and I don't want to segue into that because um, that's a whole other story. Uh, but the network brought me in to produce Chico because the guy I was working for wasn't paying enough attention to the stories and the scripts. And they weren't happy with that. So they said, why don't you come in and produce the show? That was a big break for me. And I, I really kind of replaced my boss, who I was very close to at the time, but little did I know he was going to be screwing me down the line. I had always wanted to do, as I said, I always wanted to do a show about the juvenile delinquents. And so, and I was obsessed with that stuff. So I thought it would be great to do a school show about the tough kids I went to school with in Brooklyn. And like Vinny Barbarino was in my class, but so was Sammy the Bull. And I didn't know he was Sammy the Bull. He didn't become Sammy the Bull until, you know, who Sammy the Bull was. Oh yeah. Uh, the gangster. Yeah. <laughs> he was in my class. Oh, Those Jesus. like, the kids in my class. There was Nick, Nicky Bop, Vinnie Barbarino, Sammy the Bull, Paulie Antonacola, Joey Colucci, et cetera. And those were the kids that I was friends with and going to school with. And I thought they would make a great basis for a sitcom. So I sat in my office and I thought that there was, there were no school shows on the air. And at this point, this must've been like 19, 73 think there was a vacuum for school shows and again i loved anything to do with teenagers i even loved like the california stuff the gidget stuff you know but it wasn't it's not something i related to being in brooklyn but i did like mr novak um it was a, a school show i think that start james franciscus there's another example of kind of leading men that they were choosing that. So I, I liked I liked that show. I liked um Room Two Twenty Two was a was a cool show. I loved that show. There was Alamus Brooks, there was Dolby Gillis, but I liked those. I, I liked those when when a school show went on, I would turn in to watch it. But there were none on at this period of time. And so I said, Well, okay, I should maybe come up with the idea for a school show, which I did, and that was Welcome back, Carter. I thought it would be really interesting to get a character who was a teacher and returned to the school where he went to. And Freddie Prince, as I said, I was um, producing Chico. Freddie brought me to the comedy store to see him work out. The comedy store was, this was, I guess, in 74, just starting. the um, class of the comedy store at that time were comics like um, 
I believe David Letterman, Jay Leno, Richard Belzer, Freddie, Charlie Fleischer. But I saw Gabe. Gabe was working out that night, and I liked him. He was talking about these tough kids he went to school with in Brooklyn. I related to those kids. He was talking about the same kind of kids I was going to school with. We had Gabe and I didn't go to the same high school, but I think we might have been in the same year. And we had the same high school experiences, and we had the same kind of archetype kids that we knew. And um, so um, we talked about that. Oh, so, so Gabe talked about that in his act. And I thought he was really funny. And I went to him afterwards. I said, you and I should get together. Let's develop a show. And back then, sit, situation comedies were being developed with comedians in the lead role. That would be that was an important part, an important component of the package. And at that point, I had lunch with him and I said to Gabe, I said, we should do a show about these kids. I'm writing about them. You, you're talking about them. Let's do that. And then I thought Gabe was too old to be one of the kids. And I said, you should be that teacher. And I just, that like, it was like a bolt of lightning. And he liked that. And we worked on that as a presentation. And then I took it into ABC. I was working for David Walper at the time. And Walper set up in a meeting for me with Michael Eisner. I pitched that show. So Eisner was a great program executive and very creative guy. And he said, why don't you make Epstein, the Epstein character, half Jewish and half Puerto Rican? And I said, well, I, I don't know if that's such a good idea. Didn't, didn't, ring, didn't ring true to me. But I went along with it because he was the guy in charge. And I said, great. And we did that. And that turned out that it was a great idea because we had miles of things to do with comedy with that kind of, you know, hook. And then he also said to me, do you want to use Gabe? And I said, you know, Michael, I started this with him. Let's stick with him. And so that's what I did. And, um, and it worked out. It worked out. That was the show. And then the other element, the other great element, John Sebastian was a friend of mine and he was staying with me in, in my house in LA. And we had just gotten the script. The script was just completed and we need, we got the, we had the pilot commitment. And I said, John, I just got a pilot commitment for this comedy that I'm doing. Why don't you try writing the theme song? Here's the script. Go back in the, in the guest room where you're staying and come back with a song. So he said, great. And he went back there and he comes back like an hour later with, welcome back. Your dreams, <laughs> you took it out. And that was, um, that was it. Where does the video come from? I mean, it's just, it's so many things all piled on top of each other. I had a street name that a guy by the name of Zachary gave me. And when I was in the editing, I was, I was shooting these punk videos at the Club Lingerie in Hollywood. I was in the editing room and he came in. He, he was hosting it. And you, you might recall 
he's the announcer of New Wave Theater. He's not the host, but he's the announcer. He wears a tuxedo. He's an over-the-top guy that's, you know, sort of like, uh, thinks he was like a punk version of Hoagie Carmichael. Super cool piano player. He was the host of this um, thing I was doing at the Club Lingerie. And he comes into the editing room and he said, you need a punk name. And I said, what do you think it should be, Zachary? And he looks at me and says, Dubidio. And I said, that's pretty cool. What does it mean? He said, of punk video. <laughs> that was pretty good. And so three days later, I went out and got Dubidio tattooed on my arm to like really, you know, get some credibility. And that's what I did. So that's, that was the birth of Dubidio. And then a group of guys that knew me from Brooklyn, these were guys maybe 20 years older than me, that my father might have known, maybe 30 years older than me, maybe 20, I don't know. And these were guys, you know, sort of connected guys. And they were making a movie about the runaways with Joan Jett. The movie got sidetracked by the director. He didn't do a very good job. That was all the Joan Jett footage. The footage was great, but they never completed the story. And so it wasn't happening the way they wanted it to do. And they they didn't have enough footage to complete the movie. So they came to me when I'm out here. They came to me to complete the film. So So I had to write a script. And so I was thinking about what can I do to write a script to complete this footage of Joan Jett. And one of the writers that I worked with, Mark Scheffler, a comedy writer, he and I were brainstorming and we came up with the idea of Dubidio, me now, the character, but the real life Dubidio, that was me, to finish the Joan Jett movie and have the movie be financed by the mob. And Dubidio fucked up. He didn't complete it. And now he had a limited number of hours to complete the film. And that's, in fact, what happened. I took the money from them to make this movie, and I had to figure out how to complete it. So I made a movie about me making a movie. That's what the video is about. Then you've got the commentary stuff on top of that. Was that always in the plan? Yeah. No. No. I didn't finish the movie. I didn't do a good job on the movie. So the plan, the plan was, I watched the movie so many times and saw when people were asking, were asking me or saying to me, what happened here or what happened there? And I didn't have the footage to finish it. So I figured, fuck, man, I could finish it with the audio and with stills. I have a lot of stills or I can, I can license some stills and I can also license some crazy other shit. A lot of religious images that were scary, you know, Sacred Heart. Or um, I could also um, use stock footage inexpensively. I think if I got anything that was shocking, shocking enough, it can work on the screen. And that was my thesis and how I finished it. I, I put together a bunch of different things. I put together stills. I put together, and then when I didn't have enough stills... I went out and shot Polaroids, and when I when I didn't have enough there, 
I was licensing stock footage, just about everything but the kitchen sink. And But then there were still holes. So I thought that as I watched the movie a few times with some of my cast members and the, the, the ones that were glib, Durf Scratch, who played uh, the editor, Benny, and, you know, crazy as it is, El Duce as the video. El Duce was a pretty funny guy. And he always had those crazy lines. When they were watching the movie with me, they were always like, you know, talking shit to the screen. I said, you know what? Let me record this and get get that down as if we're all watching the movie together now that it's delivered and there's still holes in it. And we did that. And then I took that and added another layer on it. So there are a lot of different layers. So that's so it's all evolving itself organically. I kept trying to figure out where things were coming from when you shot them. There's footage of the mentors. Was that shot originally, or did you go back and add that back in? That was shot. That was shot. I didn't. I, that was. Um, I, I went out and I curated the craziest shit I could find, and that was some of the nastiest stuff I could find. You know, shocking. And I said, I said that in the movie. I, I didn't want to. I forgot the guy in Pressman who directed that that segment. You know, Durf says to me, Benny says, Debidio, you can't put that in. You didn't shoot it. And I say, Shut up. Sh- shut the fuck up. We or I have Ray say it. Ray said Ray said it. So I was just curating a lot of far out stuff and and but putting it in together into the movie. It's sort of like Burroughs always had the um when he when he was writing like Naked Luncher his books, he had the cut-up technique, where he would cut up scenes and throw them on the floor and then paste them together. That's what I did. But I didn't know that was Burroughs' um, technique. But that's what this movie is. Ray Sharkey, he was such a talent. I mean, the idol maker was just fantastic. How was he to work with? You know, Ray, rest his soul. He was, you know, he he had some troubles. Um, He was a good friend of mine. I knew him from Brooklyn. He sold me pot, but he, you know, he had other ha- other habits and problems. He, you know, he did this movie for me, and I loved it. He was tough to work for, I talked for and with, you know. But I, I had to get him up in the morning. I, I had him drive him around, and you know, just make it work. And he did. We did, and he did a great performance. If you could look at up a, a, a review from the L.A. Weekly of Ray Sharkey and DeBidio. The, the quote was, Ray Sharkey gave the performance of his life. And at that point, I forget, he he was doing a um, a television series, I think, for Stephen Canal. Wise Guy, yeah, he was doing Wise Guy. He had a good career. CBS loved him. And he also, you know, he had done The Idolmaker. And he, he did a movie where he played Allen Ginsberg. Do you remember that movie? He was amazing in The Idolmaker. I mean, that was an astonishing movie. How did you and Mark Scheffler meet? We might have met out of the comedy world. The, um, but I think through Gabe, I think Mark, Mark wrote some shows with Gabe. So I think it might have come through Gabe Kaplan. And so we, you know, we knew each other from that. But I also walked into the punk world. I became totally into that. How were El Duce and Durf Scratch to work with? Duce, you just had a prop up. He was just, you know, it was like funny, great, but, you know, impossible. You know, you had to be like a lion tamer. 
keep controlling him. Durf was very hardcore punk, but I thought Durf was extremely talented. He brought a lot to that role. He, you know, he had a lot of great ideas. I never would have known that he was not a professional actor. He was so good in it. He, ne- he never, he never acted before. He did extra work. He was in Fear. He was the bass player in Fear. He was very, um, very good. But he was, you know, he was, you know, a guy that, you know, slept till noon every day and liked to drink, and you know, he was, and then put the turf together with Ray Sharkey, what a. And, and El Duce on the sideline, <laughs> you got quite a combination. Volatile. How did you get uh, Joanna Went to be in it? Well, she's one of my close friends. She's one of my close friends now. The art director of the show, he and I became very close. His name is George DiCaprio. Well, he's Leo's father. And he had Leo around, Leonardo around, when he was like 10 years old. And he was always hanging around the editing room helping me design the set. But in addition to the set design, he also was sort of the art director of the movie where he introduced me to Gary Panther, who's the artist that did the graph. Oh yeah. That was the other thing. I used Gary Panther's graphics, Jimbo and a lot of his cartoons as like one shots in the movie. So I had Gary Panther stuff. I had the, the stills of Ed Culver I had the, that was the, the cats and the car wrecks and the and the punk shoes and all the all the very dramatic stills. So George introduced me to Gary Panther. He introduced me to Ed Culver, whose stills I used. We have five hundred stills in that movie. We have Gary Panther stills. We have or, or reproductions of his artwork. And, and George introduced me to Johanna Went. George was the guy that designed Johanna Went's props. He and his current his wife now, at the time they were they weren't married. He and Peggy would buy props for Johanna's show and use her props. You know whether they'd be you know meat pieces of meat or fake blood or whatever kind of really messy stuff that goes into a, a Johanna Went performance, George and Peggy manufactured that stuff with Johanna. And so we became friends and um, he introduced me to Johanna and I thought Johanna would be great to have in the movie because I had never seen an act like that before. It was pretty shocking and pretty great, I thought. It was real, real odd. And so that's how I got Johanna. So that that was a great uh, bit of casting. But again, I knew Johanna's act, but I had to figure out a way to incorporate her act into the movie. So we did it with designing, how do we get Johanna's performance into this movie? And it became Benny's nightmare. He fell asleep. He drank, you know, he drank, NyQuil and went on a nod and dreamt of Johanna. That was, that was the dream. I was curious too. I, I imagine you knew Texacala Jones from the scene as well. I did. I did. Yeah. We became friends. I knew her before I shot video with Tex before. And she was, <laughs> she was also a trip, man. <laughs> she was far out. She still is. 
She still lives. She lives down in Texas. I haven't seen her in a long time. I, you know what? I saw her. Joanna had put on an art show probably about two or three years ago. A, a artist on the scene called Mark Gash, and a lot of the people from the scene were at that art show. And Tex had flown up from Texas. She lives in Texas now. I believe she lives in Austin. She flew up from Austin. And I saw her then. That was great. She was a lot of fun. What did the Runaways think about them being in this movie, especially so many years after the original movie fell apart? They hated it. They hated it. I I never spoke to them. Um, I know that Joan Jett wasn't her thing. She thought it was really misogynistic, which it was. But I, I didn't do it in that way. That's not me. They didn't want any part of it. But on the other hand, a lot of people did. A lot of people are always asking me about it all the time. I mean, and it went to every film festival around the around the world. It was in Tokyo. It was in Cannes. It was in Germany. I, I saw, I think it was at the Munich Film Festival. I was sitting at the, like the BMW Theater and watching while that was going on, while Johanna went or the mentors or Tezon, kids in front of me were like burning their hands with cigarettes. You know, they were just they were just being so fucking moved by what was going on. And they played that film. There's a distributor in, in Berlin. They they played that film in a town called Tübingen. They played it as the late night show for like years. People would go there, you know, every like Friday or Saturday night to see this movie at midnight. And then there's the other thing. This all came from a club that I was going to in LA called the zero club. It was an after hours club where all the bands went, you know, all the bands after they played their gigs would gather at the zero club. So you can go there and you could see everybody from El Duce to Tex to the chili peppers to Derf to David Jove, all of them we were all there. I imagine that the film was very welcomed in the punk community. Yeah, they loved it. It played at a club called the Lhasa Club. They ran it at the Lingerie a few times. It opened Filmex. Filmex was, uh, I forget what they call it now. The It's like the L.A. Film Festival, but it was called Filmex then. You know, Raymond Zarek, a good friend of mine from The Doors, he was there. I remember that was important for me. He really liked it. He gave me the thumbs up. So, yeah, so the punks liked it. They definitely liked it. I guess it wasn't too much of a stretch to go from the punk scene into the skate scene with uh, thrashing. It was natural. And um, that was the same scene in a way. Um, but what happened with that was there was an article written about me and the BDO in the L.A. Week. Women named Gloria Olin wrote this great story about me. And it, you know, I talked about uh, going from finding John Travolta and then finding El Duce. <laughs> that was my, my transition, right? Similarly, on the same page, there was an article about a group of women, young women, bags, and they were skateboarders, teenage girl gang of skateboarders. To this day, I still want to make a movie about that. I think they actually made a, a, a movie. New York about young women, girl skateboarders. I don't remember. 
set in set in Washington Square. In the they, the L.A. Weekly had an article about me and and about these skateboard girls. They were they weren't even women. They were kids. These these girl skateboarders, and they were called the Hags. And I wanted to know who the hell they were. I said, who who was getting half the half the pay, half the page that I'm on? I wanted to know what they were about. So I asked Zachary. I asked him if he knew who the Hags were, and he knew them, and he told me all about them. And with that, I started to research who this, who these punk skateboarders were, and got into knowing who the who the punk skaters were, Tony Alva and the people that skated with him and the Jacks team from San Francisco. You know, I'm like a, a, an anthropologist in a way. Researching something, I can go into the scene. And that, that's what I did with with the skating. It was like hand in glove. It was a good fit from segueing from the video into, um, into um, the skaters. And, um, and, and, but then in, at the same time, I did the same thing. I found a couple of bands. I knew I would find a place for them in the movie, like the Chili Peppers. I got them to, I, I knew I, I had a place in the, in the skateboarding film where the Chili Peppers would go. And then I just figured out we'd make it a, uh, a skate bash, whether Paul, Paul Brown and I, we wrote that together. Um, we it was like a skate jam, and those things existed where they would have dances where the skaters were going, and that team of of skateboarders who wore in the movie they were the daggers they they wore the colors like Hell's Angels colors for their club, the jacks, so we gave that to the daggers in the movie, and that was a lot of fun that that movie was was like fantastic, you know we had. You know, one scene with uh, the downhill race, we had 300 skateboarders up on the hill and they were, they were you know, skating insanely. And they were punk. This, the guys, the punks, if you look at Ed Culver's pictures, that I'm, that I'm, the guys who were jumping off the stage, stage diving off the balcony in the, in the punk concerts, they were the same guys who were the skateboarders. They were skating, you know, so that that was um, a, an absolute natural transition. I'm very curious about some of the things that you've worked on recently, but I'm even more curious how you went from, I guess it was kind of a natural progression, how you went from working in films and being part of the music scene to actually being a manager of a band. The, which band? The, uh, the, um, so many Unlocking bands, right? <laughs> I mean, oh, yeah, you, yeah, you've yeah, managed yeah, right. more than more than one. Yeah, well, I love I love music. I love music, you know. So that's you know what I did, and I you know I I wound up uh, developing this show for the Jonas. Oh, yeah, Disney. I've been doing you know I've been doing um, movies for the Disney Channel, and they asked me to come up with a movie about a camp where where kids you know went to learn rock and roll, rock camp. Camp Rock. And that was like a natural segue. And with that, um, I was introduced to um, to the Jonas Brothers and cast Joe in the lead of that. You know, so that was like a natural. Um, but, it, you know, it wasn't on the hardcore trajectory, 
but it was the same path, you know. So that that you know it was it was a musical path. And then I saw this these heavy metal kids in Times Square, and they were from Brooklyn, where I was from. And I went back to meet with them, and you know they were right near where I went to school, Brooklyn College. And then their father asked me if I wanted to manage them. That was unlocking the truth. And then I was able to um, set up a movie with them. Did you know that movie? Did you see that film? Is that the uh, Breaking a Monster? Yeah, Breaking the Monster, yeah. I was able to set that up, and I got them a book, and I got them a record deal. They didn't think I was doing enough of them, so they thought that their parents should manage them. So I said, you know what? Good luck. I'm out of here. I'm not going to deal with your shit anymore. <laughs> I haven't heard from them since. or seen about them since. Having your parents manage you is usually a pretty big mistake. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. So what kind of stuff have you been up to lately? Because you are the kind of person that never rests. That's right. Like Neil Young says, rest never sleeps. I've always been stuck in my teenage years. Still a teenager. And what I'm doing now is I revisited the punk world for the last two years. I've been investigating the murder of a guy I knew in that world, Peter Rivas, who was the host of the New Wave Theater. And it's an unsolved crime that is still not solved. And I've taken a really deep dive into this world. It was designed as a podcast and, and using the same, a lot of the same people, a lot of the same techniques for a podcast that hasn't seen the light of day as yet. I worked on it for two years and for Stitcher, you're a podcaster, so you know these companies. And it was with the, I was very excited about it, women who do my favorite murder, because I was going to get some great promotion. But through the, the acquisition of Stitcher by Sirius, they elected not to go with this podcast. They didn't take this as part of, and it was really pretty heartbreaking for me. And, but I, I do have all the material and all the rights and all the releases and some, and it's a great fucking podcast, man. It's really a good podcast. I interview people like Jello Biafra, Don Bowles, all the people I could draw on from that punk world um and i bring that into the podcast so hopefully by the time your thing is going to be ready or on this is going to be find a home very very soon so i'm spending a lot of time you know figuring out where i can get this placed and by the way i welcome any any thoughts from you down the line we could talk about that off the record and that that's what i'm up to that's and, and it, it's been great to revisit this again because, you know, this was my passion, you know, so it's one of my passions, you know. I spent, I also spent, I split my time, if you can believe it or not, um, practicing Buddhism. And so, uh, you know, I do a lot of meditation. Mr. Sachs, thank you so much for your time. This has been a real pleasure talking with you. Hey, my pleasure. Um, but Mr. Sachs, well, that's very nice. <laughs> <laughs> You can call me Alan, but, uh, you know, that's like, you know, the other thing that I've done in the last, I haven't done it in a while. I've been a college professor and I was the chair of the media program at Los Angeles Valley College, which is also 
a significant part of my um, my work. And I like teaching because I like being with students. So there we have it. Welcome back. Your dreams were your ticket out. Welcome back to that same old place that you laughed about. Well, the names have all changed since you hung around. But those dreams have remained and they've turned around. Who'd have thought they'd lead you? I guess maybe Free Fix for a Fuck is a big favorite of mine. I think to a certain extent he's like a great artist in that he doesn't really give a damn what people think of him. I've got my lyrics and if they don't like it, they could eat shit out of my ass. And he was like running around the bus going into people's face with this pee balloon. It's as easy as that. I mean, he's successful because he gets reaction. Uh, it's like there's a need for that in society. El Duce had a lot of weird aspects to his personality. What's that like, not having a home? Makes me want to drink more. I think I'd make the first greatest dictator that this country has ever had. I'm American all the way. All right, we are back, and we were talking about Dubidio. I'm curious, did anybody get a chance to see the El Duce tapes documentary? Or how far did you get into it, I think is the question. <laughs> I watched the whole thing, believe it okay. or not. Kind of sad, but I watched the whole thing. <laughs> well, the beginning was mostly the clips of him on talk shows being exploited. What did you think? Of, can you describe uh, El Duce and why, why his significance? So El Duce, he was... What, what were we calling them? Shock rockers. So it was interesting that they were hitting on some of the same shock rock groups that immediately come to mind. So like Gigi Allen, Guar, I'm trying, uh, the Crucifox, there are a couple others. And yeah, uh, so El Duce was a drummer in the Mentors and their whole thing was just to be as controversial as you possibly could. I'm not into their music. Definitely not into their politics. I like sometimes the idea of pushing buttons, but I just was not really into El Duce. I found El Duce sometimes entertaining. The, his voice is very interesting. I liked listening to his voice, but what he had to say, I wasn't a big fan of. Though I did like the aesthetic of the documentary and this whole idea of 
VHS as a medium and the way that they would actually have like tape break up and use like the old blue screen menu with the play and stop and be able to manipulate things through like VHS interfaces. He was pretty popular because, or at least uh, all these like daytime talk shows were. Oh, yeah. And he went, you know, they exploited that. He gave good commentary, I think. He was great for that kind of show. I used to work on those shows. So, like, that kind of guy is. And the fact that he would play along, I mean, he played along, that was his whole thing. Yes, his voice was cool. His image was cool. The hood was cool. The music was good. The, you know, the message was like obviously awful <laughs> yeah was that what you're supposed to do is just be so repulsed and go i love this guy because he's so repulsing well there's a bit that's in dubidio that i think is also in this documentary where it's um somebody has a woman on a leash and they're pushing her face down in dog food and i so kept thinking of the the line from spinal tap well you should have seen the cover they wanted to do it was interesting that they kind of took it towards the end and said, what has this kind of stuff wrought and having, you know, um, I'm, I'm blanking on the name. The guy who won the Congressional Medal of Honor recently. Oh, yeah, of course. Rush Limbaugh having Cartman just like has did people like El Duce create this horrible environment where we can be where we're at in the world. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that, but. I did find parts of the documentary is interesting. And I forgot that he was in Kurt and Courtney claiming that he killed Kurt Cobain for Courtney. Was he doing that just to be an asshole? Like part of a shtick? I think so. Yeah. Oh yeah. I 100% think that he was just being an asshole, which is like kind of 99% of his whole thing. There's only a few instances in the doc where he kind of lowers his guard, actually puts his foot down and says that he's not going to be playing a, uh, concert with some white power people because he's got friends who are Asian and black. And I was just like, Oh, well, that's nice. You actually have morals. You have like some scruples somewhere inside of you. I will not sing my songs about rape to all these white supremacists. <laughs> exactly. They are not good enough to hear my songs about rape. <laughs> I'm going to take this to a mixed crowd. I'm woke. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, on a totally superficial note, I have noticed over the years of watching like El, like El Duce and the Mentors stuff and watching Gigi Allen, it seemed like a lot of the women that gravitate towards these guys are really attractive. And you're like, but I'm, you're kind of like, damn, like that's the trim he's getting. Like I, it always floors me. But my uh, my husband actually used to be in a like back in the early nights, roomed with a bunch of scum punks in New, like New Hampshire, and they actually knew a girl that dated Gigi Allen, and she apparently looked at just like Amy Mann, like beautiful girl, but she was crazier than a shit house rat. But could prove she knew Gigi, like she legit did. But they gave her shit because they're like, didn't Gigi have AIDS? And she'd be like, oh, wait, we were just friends. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But everyone watched it like them on Springer. Like the girl with the mentors that gets all defensive of them towards Guar. Like she's a pretty lady. I don't know. You can never, you can never tell. The ladies love the musicians. No matter what? <laughs> like, no matter musician? what. Any musician, apparently. <laughs> Wow. I do know how to play the triangle. Mike, I'm going to give you a little tip. Word on the street is the zither is where it's at. Oh, wow. If you want All the right. honeys swarming to you, you bust out that zither. And if you, bro- if you break out a theremin, oh boy, 
the panties will be dropping. So you just be prepared, sir. <laughs> it's hard to take the theremin on, from gig to gig, but uh, it's worth it. But it's, it's worth it. <laughs> totally, totally worth it. <laughs> Picturing Keanu Reeves playing theremin in the new Bill and Ted movie. <laughs> I, I loved that. I did see that. I'm curious. Have you guys ever seen director's cut? The uh, one that Penn Jillette is in? No. What, so that in the notes, what, what is that film? It plays with form very much like Dubidio plays with form. It, it is taking a movie that is allegedly being shot, but it's basically being shot for the movie that director's cut is. And then there is footage from Penn Jillette, who is playing a uh, obsessive fan of Missy Piles and Missy Piles in this cop movie that is being shot. And he like keeps showing up to the, the shooting actually even manages to have a cameo in the movie. He allegedly wins a contest or something. And then he kidnaps Missy Pyle and then he basically redoes the movie, but like green screens himself and Missy Pyle back into the footage. It's really, really interesting. I thought from the description that it was going to be really super annoying, but it's not. It's, it's a, a actually a great, uh, little movie and very much in the way that Dubidio plays a form by having the three layers in here. Um, also, director's cut kind of has something similar to it, so I would recommend it if you if you like to BDO, or even if you don't, I would recommend director's cut. Man, that sounds really cool. I love Pendulette, so yeah, Missy Pyle. By the way, I was trying to IND the movie, and it's too broad a name, so I put Missy Pyle, and it came up. One of the movies that came up was Missy Pissy. So I want my wife to know I'm on her computer that that was a mistake. I'm just trying to get this out. I'm covering my old bases. I'm just saying, I was trying to look up Missy Pyle. I think Missy Pissy was a mentor song. It might have been. It was a ballad. It was a rock punk ballad. <laughs> it was, yeah, that was their... That was our wedding song. That was their bid for mainstream. Like, if White Lion can do it, God damn it, so can the mentors. If the Goo Dolls, yeah, if the Google Dolls can, you know, sell out, so can I. <laughs> oh, oh my God. That's what that Meg Ryan movie needed. That they Missy needed pissy. some mentors. No. They needed Missy Pissy. <laughs> <laughs> so, anything else we want to talk about? Dubidio. It looked like it was shot with the security camera. That a lot of times, that's what I felt like. I thought that was what he was trying to do because he mentions it in the beginning. So maybe it was shot on that. Yeah, because this does not have. I don't think it has a DVD release. I don't think it'll ever have a Blu-ray release. I think VHS is going to be the end of the line. Just, it's amazing that it even came out on VHS because the rights for the music and the actual images. I mean, if Joan Jett hates this movie, I would think that she could get it stopped from ever showing up again. Well, maybe she did. Yeah, because like you said, it's not around. I think it's worth seeing. I think you have to put up with, you know, hands getting, uh, images of a hand getting cut up. It's not really a hand. Spoiler alert. Like, there's some gross moments in it, but I really feel like it's worth seeing because it's so different. It's just so out there that um, I think it, it just is creative. And it just when I watched it, it affected me. I don't know why I never copied his thing of talking about during a movie, you know, during some, but I just think it gave you so much freedom to like punk rock music, music to do whatever you want. And it can be a movie. I'm defending it. I think I've seen this thing four times now watching it for the podcast. And 
yeah, I have to say that the last time I watched it, it just, it was like butter. It just really was not difficult to watch at all. And yeah, I agree. I watched it last time with headphones on, and I think it works a lot better with headphones because it does bring up the voices of the people in the studio. There is still some conflict, like you were saying, Heather, there's conflict between, you know, am I hearing what's on the the screen that they're watching? Am I hearing them talk in the background or am I hearing, you know, Dubidio's level? And sometimes those fight, but then I think with headphones, it helps sort it out a little bit better. Yeah, I I definitely think it should be, you know, released on DVD and Blu-ray because I think, Adam, like your points are excellent. And I, even though I didn't care for it as a whole, I completely agree. I agree with you both. And I think the things that are, that are really cool about it are worth, that do make it, those things are worth checking it out. And, you know, I mean, there, there are far worse films that are in 4K and Blu-ray than Dubidio. I mean, I, I will always say this. I would, I think the films that I always hate the most are the ones that are boring. And just give you nothing that are just like, just like white bread that's been sat on at the bus. They're nothing. It's just flat and nothingness. This is not it. And um, I'd rather have a film that I, I have problems with, but makes me think and and gives me stuff I like, too. So, yeah, I think it should be. Um, I mean, do I blame Joan Jett for maybe not wanting it out? No. <laughs> <laughs> Same I don't. I wouldn't blame her at all, actually. But um, but I do think it's. I do think it'd be worth uh, putting out there. And um, you know, in fact, I would love to see it with the Blu-ray, where we could see all of the, you know, if it's even still in existence, all of the footage from you know, we're all crazy now as a supplement without the Dubidio wraparound or the commentary. You know, and because uh, like some of the music in that was really good. I was just saying, you bring up a great point. You, it's like, I here it is. I have 35 minutes of Joan Jett and and the Runaways, sort of. But it's 40, 35 minutes of this popular musician and her and sort of the band. What do you want to do with it? Well, I'm going to make it about myself. Like, no, we're trying to sell Joan Jett. That's why we bought the footage. No, 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 you get it. I'm going to put a bunch of punk records no one's ever heard of outside of the L.A. scene. And I'm going to put a bunch of images you never want to see. And uh, it's going to be great. So that's really punk rock. He took commercial footage and he made it and didn't make a commercial film at all. Which takes some balls. I mean, there there is a testicular fortitude to that decision that I, I, I have massive respect for. Yeah, God. I mean, the music alone, like even if somebody's hearing us talk about the film, like, oh, the film sounds not my cup of tea. If you like punk rock, the music, so much of the music in this film is solid. And I mean, and that includes like almost the power pop tones of some of the Joan Jett stuff to like Social D. So, you know, I would highly recommend that. And um, it is actually kind of cool to see Joan Jett in that weird period where she's not quite. Joan was never quite punk, but I mean, she produced the germs. Like she was part of that scene, but this is obviously kind of like right as she's getting out of the runaway. So she's still kind of glammy, but kind of getting there, like as glammy as she ever was. I mean, she's always kind of Joan Jett, but I don't know. It's neat to see. It's neat to see Cheryl Smith drumming too. I mean, sh- shit, you're not going to see that in uh, in the cheerleaders. Though that would be great. 
I want to thank my co-hosts, Heather and Adam, for being on this special episode. So, Heather, what is the latest with you, ma'am? Hopefully, by the time that this episode comes out, there will be some news about some commentary work I've done. But as of this recording, it's still on super secret basis. So, in the meantime, you can check out my website, mondoheather.com, and catch up on all my article work and podcasting and other sundries. And Adam, what has been keeping you busy? Well, there's Proudly Resents, a podcast I did for about five years, which is just exploring uh, weird movies. Movies are so bad, they're good. And some of them are interviews with the directors and people in them, and others are just comedians making fun of them. Uh, So look for that. And I did a lot of interviews with people from the movie The Room. So if you go to ProudlyResents.com slash The Room, you'll see them all there. Also, I'll put up... um, if you, I'll put up interviews from uh, Alan Sachs and some other uh, punk rock people that I talked to to kind of go with this movie. And I'm going to watch a movie about a talking cat that saves the world. I'm very excited about I was so excited that the injunction against a room full of spoons is finally over and that they can possibly go on and release that movie now. Yes, and I think well, I'll be interviewing him again about that uh, by the time this comes out. I think whenever this comes out. Yes, it's, a, it's amazing. What an amazing story. And to plug one of your episodes, you interview him, uh, the maker of the documentary Room Full of Spoons, before w- when the injunction was there. Such an interesting story. All of their plans just came crashing down. Could you imagine just investing $100,000 or more of your own money and then it just goes away? And guys like, nope, can't happen. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.